Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com For example, there's a woman that I interviewed recently and she said, whenever she hears herself say, well, it's probably nothing, that is her indicator that it's probably something. How bad is it to remove yourself from an environment? It's not bad. You're not hurting anybody. You're not doing anything to anyone. You're just retreating from the environment that you're in or getting away from a person that you don't want to be with at that moment. And there isn't an animal in nature that would even second guess that for a moment. An animal in nature that says, get away from this lion does not say afterwards, well, this is probably a nice lion. Just get away from the lion. These are the primary pre-incident indicators of which by far the most important one is the feeling that someone's trying to make you do something you don't want to do or be present where you don't want to be or engage when you don't want to engage. Are there maybe non-verbal or even verbal initial signs of controlling or violent people in the book, The Gift of Fury? You do mention charm, ironically, <laughs> and also concepts like forced teaming. Well, charm is a very important one because, you know, I don't think of charm as a feature of an individual. I think of it always as a verb. And so when someone says to me, I met this guy and he was really charming, I usually say, you mean he was really charming you? Because no person is walking around charming everyone all the time. Charm is a strategy of human behavior, like niceness. Nobody's nice to everybody all the time. But when you choose to be nice, it can have a good and admirable reason. You want to be kind to somebody, you want to put them at ease, whatever it may be. Or it can have a very sinister reason, such as you want to set someone at ease so that you can victimize them. So charm and niceness, I'm encouraging people to think of charm and niceness as choices people make, not as features of people. And it, once you do that, then you can ask the obvious follow-up question, which is why is this person charming me? 
Why is this person seeking to charm me? If it's to put me at ease because they like me and they hope to continue this conversation or having a relationship and it has no sinister intent, great. If it's to put me at ease because they could see that I wasn't comfortable and they have some sinister intent, of course, that's a different situation. So just asking the question, why is this person being charming or why is this person being nice is a lot better than simply responding to the thought and say, oh, how nice. This guy is so charming. How wonderful. What a charming person I met today. As if charming means good. It doesn't mean good at all. It's almost like an immutable characteristic. Oh, I met a tall guy today. He's really tall. It's not an immutable characteristic. It's an action, a set of choices, like you said. That's right. It's a behavior. It's a strategy of human behavior. And so charm and niceness are not indicators of kindness. They are not indicators of non-dangerousness. And it's every woman's responsibility to register charm and niceness and ask why they are present. Not everybody who's charming or nice is a predator, though. So there have to be other factors that we can look for that might be a little more clear as well. Well, you mean other pre-incident indicators? Certainly there are many. The vast majority of people who are charming and nice, in fact, the vast majority of people who are anything, are not intending to be predators and do not have any sinister intent for you. That's why we can all walk around every day and spend the whole day having gotten very few signals of concern and typically having gotten a lot of signals that set us at ease. That's why when we do get a signal that makes us uncomfortable, it's so very important to listen to it. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 4, 2019. So I have been told we are not BBQing. We are not about to lose a finger or a hand with battle simulation a.k.a. fireworks. We are doing the book club. Uh, Hopefully, if you are outside or at the beach, enjoying some sunshine, maybe even the day off from the plantation, grand. Uh, We will start a brand new book uh, for the so-called holiday. This is Gavin DeBecker. Uh, His book, The Gift of Fear. Uh, I have not read this book. Uh, Emmy, I uh, think Drop the Mania, might have even been some other uh, listeners, uh, thought that this was a pretty good book, uh, that we should check it out. Uh, it is very popular. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, among many others, uh, huge fans of the text. Uh, Mr. DeBecker, in addition to being a white man suspected racist, he talks, and I think it comes up in the text, quite a bit about the concept of political correctness. I am always alert when white people start talking about that concept and what a bad thing it is that I think you get a lot of coded racial discussions with that concept. So we'll be mindful of that as we listen. I did think, and I think from the folks who recommended this text, it was suggested that we read this book because some of the main concepts in terms of violent acts 
often have cues uh, and that if we can be more alert to the cues that we get from people, that that can help keep ourselves safe. I think that's something that victims of white supremacy uh, can learn a lot from, particularly in in terms of cues that we might get from other whites and even non-white people who mean us harm. But just being alert to that, I think sometimes in this system, uh, we ignore those cues, are conditioned to ignore those cues, and maybe this could help us not do that. That being said, we will start again, Gavin DeBecker, full title, The Gift of Fear, Survival Signals That Protect Us from Violence. Context of white supremacy, this is audio segment number one. The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, narrated by Tom Stecksholte. In this empowering book, Gavin De Becker, one of the nation's leading experts on violent behavior, shows us all how to spot even the most subtle signs of danger before it's too late. Shattering the myth that most violent acts are unpredictable, De Becker, whose clients include top Hollywood stars and government agencies, offers specific ways to protect yourself and those you love. How to act when approached by a stranger, when you should fear someone close to you, what to do if you are being stalked, how to uncover the source of anonymous threats or phone calls, the biggest mistake you can make with a threatening person, and more, helping you to learn to spot the danger signals others miss. And now, the gift of fear. Chapter 1 In the Presence of Danger This, above all, to refuse to be a victim, Margaret Atwood. He had probably been watching her for a while, we aren't sure, but what we do know is that she was not his first victim. That afternoon, in an effort to get all her shopping done in one trip, Kelly had overestimated what she could comfortably carry home. Justifying her decision as she struggled with the heavy bags, she reminded herself that making two trips would have meant walking around after dark, and she was too careful about her safety for that. As she climbed the few steps to the apartment building door, she saw that it had been left unlatched again. Her neighbors just don't get it, she thought. And though their lax security annoyed her, this time she was glad to be saved the trouble of getting out the key. She closed the door behind her, pushing it until she heard it latch. She is certain she locked it, which means he must have already been inside the corridor. Next came the four flights of stairs, which she wanted to do in one trip. Near the top of the third landing, one of the bags gave way, tearing open and dispensing cans of cat food. They rolled down the stairs almost playfully, as if they were trying to get away from her. The can in the lead paused at the second floor landing, and Kelly watched as it literally turned the corner, gained some speed, and began its seemingly mindful hop down the next flight of steps and out of sight. "'Got it! I'll bring it up!' someone called out. Kelly didn't like that voice. Right from the start, something just sounded wrong to her. But then this friendly-looking young guy came bounding up the steps, collecting cans along the way. He said, "'Let me give you a hand.' "'No, no thanks. I've got it.' You don't look like you've got it. What floor are you going to? She paused before answering him. The fourth, but I'm okay, really. 
he wouldn't hear a word of it. And by this point, he had a collection of cans balanced between his chest and one arm. I'm going to the fourth floor, too, he said. And I'm late. Not my fault, broken watch. So let's not just stand here. And give me that. He reached out and tugged on one of the heavier bags she was holding. She repeated, No, really, thanks, but no, I've got it. Still holding on to the grocery bag, he said, There's such a thing as being too proud, you know. For a moment, Kelly didn't let go of that bag. But then she did. And this seemingly insignificant exchange between the cordial stranger and the recipient of his courtesy was the signal, to him and to her, that she was willing to trust him. As the bag passed from her control to his, so did she. We better hurry, he said, as he walked up the stairs ahead of Kelly. We've got a hungry cat up there. Even though he seemed to want nothing more at that moment than to be helpful, she was apprehensive about him, and for no good reason, she thought. He was friendly and gentlemanly, and she felt guilty about her suspicion. She didn't want to be the kind of person who distrusts everybody. So they were next approaching the door to her apartment. Did you know a cat can live for three weeks without eating? he asked. I'll tell you how I learned that tidbit. I once forgot that I'd promised to feed a cat while a friend of mine was out of town. Kelly was now standing at the door to her apartment, which she'd just opened. I'll take it from here, she said, hoping he'd hand her the groceries, accept her thanks, and be on his way. Instead, he said, Oh, no, I didn't come this far to let you have another cat food spill. When she still hesitated to let him in her door, he laughed understandingly. Hey, we can leave the door open like ladies do in old movies. I'll just put this stuff down and go, I promise. She did let him in, but he did not keep his promise. At this point, as she is telling me the story of the rape and the whole three-hour ordeal she suffered, Kelly pauses to weep quietly. She now knows that he killed one of his other victims, stabbed her to death. All the while, since soon after we sat down knee-to-knee -knee in the small garden outside my office, Kelly had been holding both my hands. She is twenty-seven years old. Before the rape, she was a counselor for disturbed children, but she hasn't been back to work in a long while. That friendly-looking young man had caused three hours of suffering in her apartment and at least three months of suffering in her memory. The confidence he scared off was still hiding, the dignity he pierced still healing. The signal saved her life just as failing to follow so many others had put her at risk in the first place. She looks at me through moist but clear eyes and says she wants to understand every strategy he used. She wants me to tell her what her intuition saw that saved her life. But she will tell me. It was after he'd already held the gun to my head after he raped me. It was after that. He got up from the bed, got dressed then closed the window. He glanced at his watch and then started acting like he was in a hurry. I gotta be somewhere. Hey, don't look so scared. I promise I'm not going to hurt you. Kelly absolutely knew he was lying. She knew he planned to kill her. And though it may be hard to imagine, it was the first time since the incident began that she felt profound fear. 
He motioned to her with a gun and said, Don't you move or do anything. I'm going to the kitchen to get something to drink, and then I'll leave, I promise, but you stay right where you are. He had little reason to be concerned that Kelly might disobey his instructions, because she had been, from the moment she let go of that bag until this moment, completely under his control. You know I won't move, she assured him. But the instant he stepped from the room, Kelly stood up and walked after him, pulling the sheet off the bed with her. I was literally right behind him, like a ghost, and he didn't know I was there. We walked down the hall together. At one point he stopped, and so did I. He was looking at my stereo, which was playing some music, and he reached out and made it louder. When he moved on toward the kitchen, I turned and walked through the living room. Kelly could hear drawers being opened as she walked out her front door, leaving it ajar. She walked directly into the apartment across the hall, which she somehow knew would be unlocked. Holding a finger up to signal her surprised neighbors to be quiet, she locked their door behind her. I knew if I'd stayed in my room, he was going to come back from the kitchen and kill me. But I don't know how I was so certain. Yes, you do, I tell her. She sighs and then goes over it again. He got up and got dressed, closed the window, looked at his watch. He promised he wouldn't hurt me, and that promise came out of nowhere. Then he went into the kitchen to get a drink, supposedly, but I heard him opening drawers in there. He was looking for a knife, of course, but I knew way before that. She pauses. I guess he wanted a knife because using the gun would be too noisy. What makes you think he was concerned about noise, I ask. I don't know. She takes a long pause, gazing off past me, looking back at him in the bedroom. Oh, I do know. I get it, I get it. Noise was the thing. That's why he closed the window. That's how I knew. Since he was dressed and supposedly leaving, he had no other reason to close her window. It was that subtle signal that warned her, but it was fear that gave her the courage to get up without hesitation and follow close behind the man who intended to kill her. She later described a fear so complete that it replaced every feeling in her body, like an animal hiding inside her. It opened to its full size and stood up, using the muscles in her legs. I had nothing to do with it, she explained. I was a passenger moving down that hallway. What she experienced was real fear, not like when we are startled, not like the fear we feel at a movie, or the fear of public speaking. This fear is the powerful ally that says, do what I tell you to do. Sometimes it tells a person to play dead, or to stop breathing, or to run, or scream, or fight. But to Kelly it said, just be quiet and don't doubt me, and I'll get you out of here. Kelly told me she felt new confidence in herself, knowing she had acted on that signal, knowing she had saved her own life. She said she was tired of being blamed and blaming herself for letting him into her apartment. She said she had learned enough in our meetings to never again be victimized that way. Maybe that's the good to come from it, she reflected. The weird thing is, with all this information, 
I'm actually less afraid walking around now than I was before it happened. But there must be an easier way people could learn. The thought had occurred to me. I know that what saved Kelly's life can save yours. In her courage, in her commitment to listen to intuition, in her determination to make some sense out of it, in her passion to be free of unwarranted fear, I saw that the information should be shared not just with victims, but with those who need never become victims at all. I want this book to help you be one of those people. Because of my sustained look at violence, because I have predicted the behavior of murderers, stalkers, would-be assassins, rejected boyfriends, estranged husbands, angry former employees, mass killers, and others, I'm called an expert. I may have learned many lessons, but my basic premise in these pages is that you too are an expert at predicting violent behavior. Like every creature, you can know when you are in the presence of danger. You have the gift of a brilliant internal guardian that stands ready to warn you of hazards and guide you through risky situations. I've learned some lessons about safety through years of asking people who have suffered violence. Could you have seen this coming? Most often they say, no, it just came out of nowhere. But if I'm quiet, if I wait a moment, here comes the information. I felt uneasy when I first met that guy, or now that I think of it, I was suspicious when he approached me, or I realize now I had seen that car earlier in the day. Of course, if they realize it now, they knew it then. We all see the signals because there is a universal code of violence. You'll find some of what you need to break that code in the following chapters, but most of it is in you. In a very real sense, the surging water in an ocean doesn't move. Rather, energy moves through it. In this same sense, the energy of violence moves through our culture. Some experience it as a light but unpleasant breeze, easy to tolerate. Others are destroyed by it, as if by a hurricane. But nobody, nobody is untouched. Violence is a part of America, and more than that, it is a part of our species. It is around us. It is in us. As the most powerful people in history, we have climbed to the top of the world food chain, so to speak. Facing not one single enemy or predator who poses to us any danger of consequence, we found the only prey left, ourselves. Lest anyone doubt this, understand that in the last two years alone, more Americans died from gunshot wounds than were killed during the entire Vietnam War. By contrast, in all of Japan, with a population of 120 million people, the number of young men shot to death in a year is equal to the number killed in New York City in a single busy weekend. Our armed robbery rate is 100 times higher than Japan's. In part, that's because we are a nation with more firearms than adults, a nation where 20,000 guns enter the stream of commerce every day. No contemplation of your safety in America can be sincere without taking a clear-eyed look down the barrel of that statistic. By this time tomorrow, 400 more Americans will suffer a shooting injury, and another 1,100 will face a criminal with a gun, as Kelly did. Within the hour, 
another seventy-five women will be raped as Kelly was. Neither privilege nor fame will keep violence away. In the last thirty-five years, more public figures have been attacked in America than the hundred eighty-five years before that. Ordinary citizens can encounter violence at their jobs to the point that homicide is now the leading cause of death for women in the workplace. Twenty years ago, the idea of someone going on a shooting spree at work was outlandish. Now it's in the news nearly every week, and managing employee fear of co-workers is a frequent topic in the boardroom. While we are quick to judge the human rights record of every other country on earth, it is we civilized Americans whose murder rate is ten times that of other Western nations. We civilized Americans who kill women and children with the most alarming frequency. In sad fact, if a full jumbo jet crashed into a mountain, killing everyone on board, and if that happened every month, month in and month out, the number of people killed still wouldn't equal the number of women murdered by their husbands and boyfriends each year. We all watched as bodies were carried away from the Oklahoma City bombing, and by the end of that week we learned to our horror that nineteen children had died in the blast. You now know that seventy children died that same week at the hands of a parent, just like every week, and most of them were under five years old. Four million luckier children were physically abused last year, and it was not an unusual year. Statistics like this tend to distance us from the tragedies that surround each incident, because we end up more impressed by the numbers than by the reality. To bring it closer to home, you personally know a woman who has been battered, and you've probably seen the warning signs. She or her husband works with you, lives near you, amazes you in sports, fills your prescriptions at the pharmacy, or advises on your taxes. You may not know, however, that women visit emergency rooms for injuries caused by their husbands or boyfriends more often than for injuries from car accidents, robberies, and rapes combined. Our criminal justice system often lacks justice, and more often lacks reason. For example, America has about 3,000 people slated for execution, more by far than at any time in world history. Yet the most frequent cause of death listed for those inmates is natural causes. That's because we execute fewer than 2% of those sentenced to die. It's actually safer for these men to live on death row than to live in some American neighborhoods. I explore capital punishment here not to promote it, for I'm not an advocate, but rather because our attitude toward it raises a question that is key to this book. Are we really serious about fighting crime and violence? Often, it appears we're not. Here's just one example of what we accept. If you add up how long their victims would otherwise have lived, our country's murderers rob us of almost a million years of human contribution every year. I've presented these facts about the frequency of violence for a reason. To increase the likelihood that you will believe it's at least possible that you or someone you care for will be a victim at some time. That belief is a key element in recognizing when you are in the presence of danger. That belief balances denial, the powerful and cunning enemy of successful predictions. Even having learned these facts of life and death, some readers will still compartmentalize the hazards in order to exclude themselves. 
Sure, there's a lot of violence, but that's in the inner city. Yeah, a lot of women are battered, but I'm not in a relationship now. Violence is a problem for younger people or older people. You're only at risk if you're out late at night. People bring it on themselves and on and on. Americans are experts at denial. A choir whose song could be titled, Things Like That Don't Happen in This Neighborhood. Denial has an interesting and insidious side effect. For all the peace of mind deniers think they get by saying it isn't so, the fall they take when victimized is far, far greater than that of those who accept the possibility. Denial is a save-now, pay-later scheme, a contract written entirely in small print, for in the long run the denying person knows the truth on some level, and it causes a constant low-grade anxiety. Millions of people suffer that anxiety and denial keeps them from taking action that could reduce the risks and the worry. If we studied any other creature in nature and found the record of intraspecies violence that human beings have, we would be repulsed by it. We'd view it as a great perversion of natural law, but we wouldn't deny it. As we stand on the tracks, we can only avoid the oncoming train if we're willing to see it and willing to predict that it won't stop. But instead of improving the technologies of prediction, America improves the technologies of conflict. Guns, prisons, SWAT teams, karate classes, pepper spray, stun guns, tasers, mace. And now, more than ever, we need the most accurate predictions. Just think about how we live. We're searched for weapons before boarding a plane, visiting City Hall, seeing a television show taping, or attending a speech by the president. Our government buildings are surrounded by barricades, and we wrestle through so-called tamper-proof packaging to get a couple aspirin. All of this was triggered by the deeds of fewer than ten dangerous men who got our attention by frightening us. What other quorum in American history, save those who wrote our Constitution, could claim as much impact on our day-to-day -day lives? Since fear is so central to our experience, understanding when it is a gift and when it is a curse, is well worth the effort. We live in a country where one person with a gun and some nerve can derail our democratic right to choose the leaders of the most powerful nation in history. The guaranteed passport into the world of great goings-on is violence, and the lone assailant with a grandiose idea and a handgun has become an icon of our culture. Yet comparatively, little has been done to learn about that person particularly considering his, and sometimes her, impact on our lives. We don't need to learn about violence, many feel, because the police will handle it, the criminal justice system will handle it, experts will handle it. Though it touches us all and belongs to us all, and though we each have something profound to contribute to the solution, we've left this critical inquiry to people who tell us that violence cannot be predicted, that risk is a game of odds, and that anxiety is an unavoidable part of life. Not one of these conventional wisdoms is true. Throughout our lives, each of us will have to make important behavioral predictions on our own, without experts. From the wide list of people who present themselves, we'll choose candidates for inclusion in our lives, as employers, employees, advisors, 
business associates, friends, lovers, spouses. Whether it's learned the easy way or the hard way, the truth remains that your safety is yours. It's not the responsibility of the police, the government, industry, the apartment building manager, or the security company. Too often, we take the lazy route and invest our confidence without ever evaluating if it is earned. As we send our children off each morning, we assume the school will keep them safe, but as you'll see in Chapter 12, it might not be so. We trust security guards, you know, the employment pool that gave us the son of Sam Killer, the assassin of John Lennon, the hillside strangler, and more arsonists and rapists than you have time to read about. Has the security industry earned your confidence? Has government earned it? We have a Department of Justice, but it would be more appropriate to have a Department of Violence Prevention, because that's what we need and that's what we care about. Justice is swell, but safety is survival. Just as we look to government and experts, we also look to technology for solutions to our problems. But you'll see that your personal solution to violence will not come from technology. It will come from an even grander resource that was there all the while within you. That resource is intuition. It may be hard to accept its importance, because intuition is usually looked upon by us thoughtful Western beings with contempt. It's often described as emotional, unreasonable, or inexplicable. Husbands chide their wives about feminine intuition and don't take it seriously. If intuition is used by a woman to explain some choice she made or a concern she can't let go of, men roll their eyes and write it off. We much prefer logic, the grounded, explainable, unemotional thought process that ends in a supportable conclusion. In fact, Americans worship logic, even when it's wrong, and deny intuition, even when it's right. Men, of course, have their own version of intuition, not so light and inconsequential, they tell themselves, as that feminine stuff. Theirs is more viscerally named a gut feeling. But it isn't just a feeling. It's a process more extraordinary and ultimately more logical in the natural order than the most fantastic computer calculation. It is our most complex cognitive process, and at the same time, the simplest. Intuition connects us to the natural world and to our nature. Freed from the bonds of judgment, married only to perception, it carries us to predictions we will later marvel at. Somehow I knew, we will say, about the chance meeting we predicted, or about the unexpected phone call from a distant friend, or the unlikely turnaround in someone's behavior, or about the violence we steered clear of, or, too often, the violence we elected not to steer clear of. Somehow I knew, like Kelly knew, and you can know. The husband and wife who make an appointment with me to discuss the harassing and threatening phone calls they're getting want me to figure out who is doing it. Based on what the caller says, it's obvious he is someone they know, but who? Her ex-husband, that weird guy who used to rent a room from them, a neighbor angry about their construction work, the contractor they fired. The expert will tell them who it is, they think, but actually they will tell me. It's true I have experience with thousands of cases, but they have the experience with this one. 
Inside them, perhaps trapped where I can help find it, is all the information needed to make an accurate evaluation. At some point in our discussion of possible suspects, the woman will invariably say something like this, You know, there is one other person, and I don't have any concrete reasons for thinking it's him. I just have this feeling, and I hate to even suggest it, but... And right there, I could send them home and send them my bill, because that is who it will be. We will follow my client's intuition until I have solved the mystery. I'll be much praised for my skill, but most often I just listen and give them permission to listen to themselves. Early on in these meetings I say, No theory is too remote to explore. No person is beyond consideration. No gut feeling is too unsubstantiated. In fact, as you are about to find out, every intuition is firmly substantiated. When clients ask, do the people who make these threats ever do such and such? I say, yes, sometimes they do. And this is permission to explore some theory. When interviewing victims of anonymous threats, I don't ask, who do you think sent you these threats? Because most victims can't imagine that anyone they know sent the threats. I ask instead, who could have sent them? and together we make a list of everyone who had the ability without regard to motive. Then I ask clients to assign a motive, even a ridiculous one, to each person on the list. It's a creative process that puts them under no pressure to be correct. For this very reason, in almost every case, one of their imaginative theories will be correct. Quite often, my greatest contribution to solving the mystery is my refusal to call it a mystery. Rather, it is a puzzle, one in which there are enough pieces available to reveal what the image is. I've seen these pieces so often that I may recognize them sooner than some people, but my main job is just to get them on the table. As we explore the pieces of the human violence puzzle, I'll show you their shapes and their colors. Given your own lifelong study of human behavior and your own humanness, you'll see that the pieces are already familiar to you. Above all, I hope to leave you knowing that every puzzle can be solved long before all the pieces are in place. People do things, we say, out of the blue, all of a sudden, out of nowhere. These phrases support the popular myth that predicting human behavior isn't possible. Yet, to successfully navigate through morning traffic, we make amazingly accurate high-stakes predictions about the behavior of literally thousands of people. We unconsciously read tiny, untaught signals. The slight tilt of a stranger's head or the momentarily sustained glance of a person a hundred feet away tells us it is safe to pass in front of his two-ton monster. We expect all the drivers to act just as we would, but we still alertly detect those few who might not so that we are also predicting their behavior, unpredictable though we may call it. So here we are, traveling along faster than anyone before the 1900s ever traveled, unless they were falling off a cliff, dodging giant high-momentum steel missiles, judging the intent of their operators with a fantastic accuracy, and then saying, we can't predict human behavior. We predict with some success how a child will react to a warning, how a witness will react to a question, how a jury will react to a witness, how a consumer will react to a slogan, how an audience will react to a scene, how a spouse will react to a comment,
how a reader will react to a phrase, and on and on. Predicting violent behavior is easier than any of these. But since we fantasize that human violence is an aberration done by others unlike us, we say we can't predict it. Watching Jane Goodall's documentary showing a group of chimpanzees stalking and killing another group's males, we say the unprovoked attack is territorialism or population control. With similar certainty, we say we understand the cause and purpose of violence by every creature on earth, except ourselves. The human violence we abhor and fear the most, that which we call random and senseless, is neither. It always has purpose and meaning, to the perpetrator at least. We may not choose to explore or understand that purpose, but it's there, and as long as we label it senseless, we'll not make sense of it. Sometimes a violent act is so frightening that we call the perpetrator a monster, but as you'll see, it's by finding his humanness, his similarity to you and me, that such an act can be predicted. Though you're about to learn new facts and concepts about violent people, you'll find most of the information resonating somewhere in your own experience. You'll see that even esoteric types of violence have detectable patterns and warning signs. You'll also see that the more mundane types of violence, those we all relate to on some level, such as violence between angry intimates, are as knowable as affection between intimates. In fact, the violence has fewer varieties than the love. A television news show reports on a man who shot and killed his wife at her work. A restraining order had been served on him the same day as his divorce papers, coincidentally also his birthday. The news story tells of the man's threats, of his being fired from his job, of his putting a gun to his wife's head the week before the killing, of his stalking her. Even with all these facts, the reporter ends with, Officials concede that no one could have predicted this would happen. That's because we want to believe that people are infinitely complex, with millions of motivations and varieties of behavior. It is not so. We want to believe that with all the possible combinations of human beings and human feelings, predicting violence is as difficult as picking the winning lottery ticket. Yet it usually isn't difficult at all. We want to believe that human violence is somehow beyond our understanding, because as long as it remains a mystery, we have no duty to avoid it, explore it, or anticipate it. We need feel no responsibility for failing to read signals if there are none to read. We can tell ourselves that violence just happens without warning, and usually to others. But in service of these comfortable myths, victims suffer and criminals prosper. The truth is that every thought is preceded by a perception. Every impulse is preceded by a thought. Every action is preceded by an impulse, and man is not so private a being that his behavior is unseen, his patterns undetectable. Life's highest stakes questions can be answered. Will a person I am worried about try to harm me? Will the employee I must fire react violently? How should I handle the person who refuses to let go? What is the best way to respond to threats? What are the dangers posed by strangers? How can I know a babysitter won't turn out to be someone who harms my child? How can I know whether some friend of my child might be dangerous? Is my own child displaying the warning signs of future violence? Finally, how can I help my loved ones be safer? I commit that by the end of this book, 
you will be better able to answer these questions, and you will find good reason to trust your already keen ability to predict violence. How can I say all this so confidently? Because I've had four decades of lessons from the most qualified teachers. When I called and told Kelly I had decided to devote a year to writing this book, it turned out to take two, I also thanked her for what she taught me, as I always do with clients. Oh, I don't think you learned anything new from my case, she said. But which one did teach you the most? With many to choose from, I told Kelly I didn't know. But as soon as I'd said goodbye and hung up the phone, I realized I did know. Thinking back, it was as if I was in that room again. A woman was pointing a gun at her husband, who was standing with his hands held out in front of him. She was anxiously changing her grip on the small semi-automatic pistol. Now I'm going to kill you, she repeated quietly, almost as if to herself. She was an attractive, slender woman of thirty-three, wearing black slacks and a man's white shirt. There were eight bullets in the gun. I was standing off to the side in a doorway, watching the scene unfold. As I had been before, and would be many times again, I was responsible for predicting whether or not a murder would occur, whether or not the woman in this case would keep her promise to kill. The stakes were high, for in addition to the man at risk, there were also two young children in the house. Threats like hers, I knew, are easy to speak, harder to honor. Like all threats, the words betrayed by her admitting her failure to influence events in any other way, and like all people who threaten, she had to advance or retreat. She might be satisfied with the fear her words and actions caused, might accept the attention she had garnered at gunpoint and leave it at that. Or she might pull the trigger. For this young woman, the forces that inhibit violence and those that might provoke it were rising and falling against each other like stormy waves. She was by turns hostile, then silent. At one moment, violence seemed the obvious choice. At the next, it seemed the last thing she'd ever do. But violence is the last thing some people do. All the while, the pistol stayed steadily pointed at her husband. Except for the rapid, shallow breaths he was taking, the man in the gun sights didn't move. His hands were held out stiffly in front of him, as if they could stop bullets. I remember wondering for a moment if it would hurt to be shot, but another part of my mind jerked me back to the job I'd taken on. I couldn't miss a detail. The woman appeared to relax, and then she became silent again. Though some observers might have viewed this as a favorable indicator, I had to assess if her quiet pauses were used for a rallying of reason or a contemplation of murder. I noticed that she was not wearing shoes, but discarded the observation as irrelevant to my task. Details are snapshots, not portraits, and I had to quickly determine which bore on my prediction and which did not. The mess of papers on the floor near an overturned table, the phone knocked off the hook, a broken glass likely thrown when the argument was more innocent all assessed and quickly discarded. I then saw a detail of great significance, though it was just a quarter-inch movement. In these predictions, the gross movements may get our attention, but they are rarely the ones that matter most. 
The fraction of an inch her thumb traveled to rest on the hammer of the gun carried the woman further along the path to homicide than anything she had said or could have said. From this new place, she began an angry tirade. A moment later, she pulled the hammer of the pistol back, a not-so-subtle underscoring that earned her new credibility. Her words were chopped and spit across the room, and as her rage escalated, it might have seemed I had to hurry and complete the prediction. In fact, I had plenty of time. That's because the best predictions use all the time available. When effective, the process is completed just behind the line that separates foresight and hindsight, the line between what might happen and what has just happened. It's like your high-stakes prediction about whether the driver of an advancing car will slow down enough to allow safe passage. A fantastically complex process, but it happens just in time. Though I didn't know it that day, I was automatically applying and reapplying the single most important tool of any prediction, pre-incident indicators. Pre-incident indicators are those detectable factors that occur before the outcome being predicted. Stepping on the first rung of a ladder is a significant pre-incident indicator to reaching the top. Stepping on the sixth, even more so. Since everything a person does is created twice, once in the mind and once in its execution, ideas and impulses are pre-incident indicators for action. The woman's threats to kill revealed an idea that was one step toward the outcome. Her introduction of the gun into the argument with her husband was another, as was its purchase some months earlier. The woman was now backing away from her husband. To someone else, this may have looked like a retreat, but I intuitively knew it was the final pre-incident indicator before the pulling of the trigger. Because guns are not intimate weapons, her desire for some distance from the person she was about to shoot was the element that completed my prediction, and I quickly acted. I backed quietly down the hall through the kitchen, by the burning and forgotten dinner, into the small bedroom where a young girl was napping. As I crossed the room to wake the child, I heard the gunshot that I had predicted just a moment before. I was startled, but not surprised. The silence that followed, however, did concern me. My plan had been to take the child out of the house, but I abandoned that and told her to stay in bed. At two years old, she probably didn't understand the seriousness of the situation, but I was ten and knew all about these things. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that gun go off in the house. My mother had accidentally fired it toward me a few months earlier, the bullet passing so close to my ear that I felt it buzz in the air before striking the wall. On my way back to our living room, I stopped when I smelled the gunpowder around me. I listened, trying to figure out what was happening without going back into that room. It was too quiet. As I stood straining to hear any tiny sound, there came instead an enormous noise. Several more gunshots fired quickly. These I had not predicted. I quickly rounded the corner into the living room. My stepfather was crouched down on both knees, my mother leaning over him, seemingly offering care. I could see blood on his hands and legs, and when he looked up at me, I tried to reassure him with my calm. I knew he'd never been through anything like this before, but I had. The gun was on the floor near me, so I leaned over and picked it up by the barrel. It was uncomfortably hot to the touch. 
In terms of predicting what was coming next, the scene before me was good news. My initial thought had been to grab the gun and run out the back door. But because of a new prediction, I hid it behind a cushion on the couch. I had concluded that my mother had discharged much of her hostility and frustration along with those gunshots. At least for the moment, she was not only reasonable, but was shifting to the role of supportive wife, nursing her husband's injury as if she'd played no part in it. Far from being someone to be apprehensive about, she was now a person we were grateful to have in charge. She would make sure my stepfather was all right, she would deal with the police and the ambulance, and she would put our lives back in place as surely as if she could draw those bullets back into the gun. I went to check on my little sister, who was now sitting up expectantly in her bed. Having learned that the time after a major incident offered a period of safety and the best rest, I lay down next to her. I couldn't take a vacation from all predictions, of course, but I lowered the periscope a bit, and after a while we fell asleep. By the time our family moved from that house a year later, there were nine bullets embedded in the walls and floors. The house is still there. I imagine the bullets are as well. When the U.S. Attorney General and the Director of the FBI gave me an award for designing Mosaic, the assessment system now used for screening threats to justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm certain neither realized it was actually invented by a ten-year-old boy. But it was. The way I broke down the individual elements of violence as a child became the way the most sophisticated artificial intuition systems predict violence today. My ghosts had become my teachers. I'm often asked how I got into my work. If viewed in cinematic terms, the answer would cut quickly from scene to scene. Running at eleven years old alongside a limousine, clamoring with other fans to get a glimpse of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, would cut to me inside that limousine, working for the famous couple within eight years. Watching President Kennedy's inauguration on television would cut to standing with another president at his inauguration twenty years later, and with another twelve years after that. Watching in shock the reports of Kennedy's murder would cut to working with our government on predicting and preventing such attacks. Watching in shock the reports of Senator Robert Kennedy's murder would cut to developing the assessment system now used to help screen threats to U.S. senators. Trying unsuccessfully to stop one of my mother's husbands from hitting her would cut to training hundreds of New York City police detectives in new ways to evaluate domestic violence situations. Visiting my mother in a psychiatric ward after one of her suicide attempts would cut to touring mental hospitals as an advisor to the governor of California. Above all, Living with fear would cut to helping people manage fear. My childhood wasn't a movie, of course, though it did have chase sequences, fight scenes, shootouts, skyjacking, life-and-death suspense, and suicide. The plot didn't make much sense to me as a boy, but it does now. It turns out I was attending an academy of sorts, and though hopefully on different subjects, so were you. No matter what your major... You too have been studying people for a long time, carefully developing theories and strategies to predict what they might do. Even some of my clients will be surprised to learn what you just learned about my earliest training, 
but those who visit my office are surprised in many ways. It is, after all, a very unusual firm. The clients of Gavin de Becker, Incorporated, are a wide-ranging group. Federal government agencies, including the U.S. Marshals Service, the Federal Reserve Board, and the Central Intelligence Agency. Prosecutors, battered women's shelters, giant corporations, universities, television stars, television stations, police departments, cities, states, movie studios, cultural figures, religious leaders, champion athletes, politicians, recording artists, movie stars, and college students. Clients include the world's most famous and the world's most anonymous. People from my office attend presidential inaugurations on one coast, the Oscars and the Emmys on the other. They stroll observantly through crowds of angry protesters one day and are whisked into an underground garage at the federal courthouse the next. We've toured Africa, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, South America, and the South Pacific, learning about violence in those places. We've flown in Gulfstream jets and hot air balloons, paddled down the Amazon, been driven in armored limousines, ridden on elephants and rickshaws, been smothered by hostile crowds and smothered by adoring crowds. We've testified before Senate committees and toured secret government installations. We've had staff meetings while floating down a jungle river in the dead of night. We've ridden in presidential motorcades one week and in buses used to transport prisoners the next. We have advised the targets of assassination attempts and the families of those who are assassinated, including the widow of a slain foreign president. We have been chased by tabloid reporters, and we have chased them right back. We've been on both sides of the 60 Minutes cameras, hiding out with their crews for one story about a national fraud, answering Ed Bradley's probing questions on a murder case for another. We're called by our government when some zealot shoots an abortion doctor or opens fire on federal employees. We're called by Larry King when he needs a guest to discuss whether O.J. Simpson fits the profile of a stalking spousal killer. And we are called by Simpson's prosecutors for the same reason. We visit murder scenes to counsel frightened survivors, sometimes just minutes after the crime. We advise people who have been threatened, and we have ourselves been frequent targets of death threats. As I said, it's an unusual firm, one that could only exist in America and, in most regards, need only exist in America. What binds all of this together is prediction. My firm predicts human behavior, behavior in one category mostly, violence. Far more often we predict safety. We counsel cultural and religious leaders on how to navigate between being hated too much and being loved too much. We advise corporations and government agencies on managing employees who might act out violently. We advise famous people who are the targets of unwanted pursuers, stalkers, and would-be assassins. Most people don't realize that media figures are at the center of a swirl of desperate and often alarming pursuers. Fewer still realize that the stalking of regular citizens is an epidemic affecting hundreds of thousands every year. Among all the weird ventures in America, could you ever have imagined a literal warehouse of alarming and unwelcome things that stalkers have sent to the objects of their unwanted pursuit? Things like thousand-page death threats, phone-book-thick love letters, body parts, dead animals, facsimile bombs, razor blades, and notes written in blood? Would you have imagined that there is a building containing more than 350,000 obsessive and threatening communications? 
Many of my seventy associates work in just such a building. There they cast light on the darkest parts of our culture, seeking every day to improve our understanding of hazard and every day helping people manage fear. Though fewer than fifty of our twenty thousand cases have been reported in the news, and though most of our work is guardedly non-public, we have participated in many of the highest-stakes predictions that individuals and nations ever make. To be the best at this, we have systematized intuition, captured and tamed just a tiny part of its miracle. You have some of that miracle, and through an exploration of high-stakes predictions, those involving the outcome of violence or death, you'll learn ways to have a safer life. After discussing how intuition works for you and how denial works against you, I'll show that fear, which can be central to your safety, is frequently misplaced. I'll explore the role of threats in our lives and show how you can tell the difference between a real warning and mere words. I'll identify the specific survival signals we get from people who might harm us. Since the signals are best concealed when an attacker is not known to us, I'll start with the dangers posed by strangers. This is the violence that captures our fear and attention, even though only 20% of all homicides are committed by strangers. The other 80% are committed by people we know, so I'll focus on those we hire, those we work with, those we fire, those we date, those we marry, those we divorce. I'll also discuss the tiny but influential minority whose violence affects us all, assassins. Through the story of a man who didn't quite complete his plans to kill a famous person, though he did kill five other people, I'll provide a look at public life you've never seen before. In chapter 15, you'll see that if your intuition is informed accurately, the danger signal will sound when it should. If you come to trust this fact, you'll not only be safer, but it will be possible to live life nearly free of fear. Context of White Supremacy. That is the conclusion of audio segment number one. Uh, we'll pick up with audio segment number two, or chapter two, rather, the technology of intuition. That's what we'll pick, it up, uh, pick up at for audio segment number two. If you have questions, gripes, things that have stood out in the first chapter, the number to dial 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Before we get to some of the folks who dialed in, uh, again, some of our listeners have already read this book, suggested this book. When, in fact, I would be surprised if a number of our listeners aren't already familiar because it seems like this is a really popular book, uh, big time bestseller. So I'm sure we have some folks who've read it uh, for Emmy. 
Drabdomania specifically, uh, if you would like to give us maybe five sentences. Uh, you read this book before. What did you think when you read it before? Counter-racist context and, and overall uh, value in terms of what concepts or principles uh, did you glean from the text that you thought were worthwhile? Draptomania, Emmy, that's one. Two, I wrote in the description for this broadcast, for this book study, that uh, Mr. DeGavin, white man, he talks a lot. If you listen to interviews as we're reading the text about the concept of political correctness, we've talked about that on the program before. Uh, I have the Kindle edition. There is a note at the beginning of the Kindle edition that is not included in the audiobook. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read this now just so we'll have it. Because for me, he has already mentioned uh, these, this concept in the text. That's why I'm already thinking about it and encouraging you all to think about and be alert for how racism, white supremacy is going to be discussed indirectly in this text. So the note reads, men of all ages and in all parts of the world are more violent than women. For this reason, the language in this book is mostly gender specific to men when it comes to violence. Women can proudly relinquish recognition in the language because here, at least, politically correct would be statistically incorrect. Every story in this book is true, and 90% of the names used are actual names of the people involved. The remainder have been changed to protect privacy or safety. Again, he's already used the term political correctness here. I think it's going to come up uh, some other times in the book, and I'm even going to supplement with some of the interviews he's done where he's talked about this concept. But if anybody is interested, you want to do a little extra uh, preparing for our study sessions on a new book. Gavin DeBecker has done many, many interviews uh, for this book came out in 1997. So, I mean, they got two decades worth of interviews piled up Oprah Winfrey and any, uh, many others. Uh, so you can go and, and supplement our book study session. Star six one. If you have comments or questions, we'll hit uh, first few folks who dialed in. If you have a thought or two, uh, and if you have any thoughts about racism, white supremacy, if it was mentioned, if you heard anything that sounded, although I didn't hear anything that was directly addressing racism, white supremacy, anything that stood out where you thought, hmm, some of that coded language, please share. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, put the hot dog hamburger lemonade down and chime in if you have thoughts questions folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed greetings Gus greetings greetings time. everyone greetings sir yeah I'm, I'm right now on the siege uh, there is uh symbolic uh, warfare going on outside my uh, my door uh, in an area that is uh, populated by probably about 99.99% of non-white people. Uh, they are celebrating something. Uh, I have a question. Uh, what is the uh, purpose slash interest of this book? The purpose in terms of what do you mean the purpose? 
uh, as far as what what a uh, what the reader uh, is projected to get out of get out of the, uh, the information in, in the book. The author's perspective on what readers should be getting. My perspective. Well, author, author, and or the uh, people who suggested it. Uh, I've asked some of those folks to share uh, as we proceed. Perhaps they can drop through. The author uh, explained his purpose for the text uh, in the first portion of the reading, uh, and that being that uh, people or violent acts that happen to people generally have cues, signals. They're not random. Uh, In his view, a lot of times people do not pay attention to those cues to pick up on those signals, uh, and he encourages one of the points of his book uh, is to encourage people to be more alert to any signals, any details, any feelings that you have about a person or a situation not being quite right, to be more alert to those types of signals uh, that it may cue you that this might be a person who is potentially harmful, dangerous, violent, to be more uh, cautious. That's kind of a generalized statement of the purpose for uh, this book, The Gift of Fear. Yeah. Also, uh, I uh, I noticed uh, the word intuition used a lot, and uh, I I didn't uh, get a meaning for. But did did he make a description on what what he meant when he said intuition? That's the title of the second chapter, so I'm pretty sure that will be explained uh, in chapter two. Right. Okay. I, I guess I have to be patient to wait on it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, that's all I have for right now. I'll just I'll just listen and and uh, to that first uh, question uh, based on some of the uh, the other participants uh, who have read the book. I probably would get the uh, uh, an answer to my first question. Thank you. For sure, I asked. Uh... Some of the folks who have already read the text, they can share their thoughts about what they learned first time around and or why they think this is a constructive read for victims of racism. Uh, Much obliged, retired firefighter. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Proceed again. Put that hot dog, hot dog down, hamburger down. If you have comments, questions to share. Yes, ma'am, you heard Greetings, Mr. Demi Ford. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, can I be heard clearly, Gus? Yes, sir, so far. Okay, I am slowly putting the hot dog down. <laughs> what I would like to uh, comment on is the uh, pre incident indicators. I think, uh, you know, I, I think this, this book would be conservative. Uh, I mean, uh, constructive because these are some of the things that, you know, you may not ordinarily think about, but it's something we should be thinking about because I know of a couple of incidents where, you know, I had some kind of feeling about certain person, you know, that I was working with, he was 
being the military, and he was doing the Vietnam era war, and he was a tunnel rat. He was small enough to get down in the tunnels during the Vietnam war, and he was always kind of off, you know, off key, weird looking, unkept type white guy. And he was always uh, talking about violence uh, towards his neighbor. And, you know, I. I, you know, I had thoughts that he might do something. One day I was driving to work. I heard on the radio, called out his name. He had killed his neighbor, shot him several times. And he had told me a few days earlier that he was going to do it, you know. But, you know, nobody was taking this guy serious. You know, I mean, there are indicators, and then some people just come out and, and just say it. You just don't believe that they would actually do it and then they do it then uh this guy has created a firm you know on helping to uh corporations or businesses the government everybody figure out you know uh who will commit these violent acts you know i think that's probably a good thing uh but when he talked about all these things like uh, no king blood and uh, different things that maybe were sent for ransom or whatever. He mentioned that uh, this place holds some of the nation's uh, darkest, the darkest part of our nation. So this symbolism, you know, is starting to come out. Uh, and then I was suspicious of if you're talking to a white female, and he's saying that if her intuition is that some harm might come to her from this person, and it's generally true, that's kind of going along with the old narrative of, you know, uh, the black man being the uh, perpetrator and the white woman being molested by black men, that's fear. And I think that's all of it's, in actuality, it's a myth, but this same type of thinking uh, perpetrates that type of attitude because a person, the first thing you think about if you run into, let's say, uh, an athlete that's six foot eight and weigh 360 pounds, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, depending on the, the look on the person's face, you know, you, you might feel some fear there because if he suddenly decide to uh, get violent, you know, what would you do? Where would you run? And uh, at the end of what he was talking about, he, uh, he said, even if you, what I got, or even if you follow all the suggestions that he got, uh, a person still can't live, uh, especially in this part of the planet, without fear. And if you're a non-white person in America, there is definitely no way that you could live here without some degree of fear. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks. Much obliged, Mr. Demery Four. Thank you for getting the hot dog down gently. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? 
Greetings, Henry in Chicago. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to uh, all the callers and listeners. <clears throat> a couple of quotes that I picked up from this uh, reading. Uh, quote, as the most powerful people in history, we have climbed to the top of the world food chain, so to speak, facing not only one single enemy or predator who poses to us any danger of consequence, we found that the only prey uh, left ourselves, end quote. Uh, the most powerful people in history have been uh, our white people, and they have climbed the food chain. And after their domination of non-white people on the planet, the only people that they have left are themselves, which uh, we have uh, World War One and World War Two and these, you know, the Civil War, since uh, there's nobody, no, no other non-white people to fight. Uh, white people have an instinctive, violent uh, nature of... Well, we have nobody to fight, so we have to just fight ourselves. Um, uh, one other quote, uh, quote, Americans are expert at denial, end quote. Uh, yes, uh, Americans slash white people are experts in denial, which is a part of racism because they always, uh, most white people believe that, you know, racism doesn't exist, so racism isn't that bad. Uh, so uh, there's another quote here, uh, quote, all of this was triggered by the deeds of fewer than 10 dangerous men who got our attention by frightening us, end quote. I think that was the part where he was talking about how we live in fear uh, uh, with uh, mass shootings, and these fewer than 10 dangerous uh, men uh, are white people. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to probably say that that's who he was probably suggesting. Um, Another one, he says, uh, quote, we don't need to learn about violence, maybe feel because the police will handle it, and the criminal justice system, end quote. Uh, basically, the police and the criminal justice system perpetrates violence, uh, in particularly against uh, non-white black people. Um, another quote, uh, it will come from an even grand, grander resource that was there all the while within you. That resource is intuition, end quote. Uh, uh, just like with a retired firefighter, I didn't get a, a definition of intuition, but uh, if I use uh, uh, a definition uh, of what I think it is, it's more of a, of a sense, uh, a particular sense that you get uh, of something coming uh, and I know that's probably not clear, but it's sort of like that sense that, you know, we don't pay attention to. However, with this legalization of marijuana and everybody drinking, you know, today is the 4th of July, so there's a lot of people going to be inebriated uh, today. Uh, that's the most, that, that, that situation, uh, we're the most vulnerable when we're, when we're not sober. Uh, a lot of people... Um, a lot of people, especially non-white people, uh, get, end up getting killed because uh, they're, you know, inebriated or not sober uh, because they cannot sense the danger coming. Uh, they, you know, they can't sense when, when, it, when it's safe to be at a certain place. Uh, so uh, I appreciate you saying, you know, stuff like that every show when you're talking about, uh, you know, being sober because... When we're, when we're not sober, that's when we're the most vulnerable. 
Uh, and the uh, and the interesting uh, part about when the man killed his wife at at the job, and the signs were there uh, that you know he was going to do that, uh, kind of reminds me of you know uh, the police uh, killing unarmed black people, uh, and nothing's being done about it uh, because it's allowed to happen, and so we can predict that. You know, there's going to be another police, you know, another policeman killing another black person in the next, you know, two days, because uh, we kind of see it like almost every day now. So uh, that kind of that analogy kind of reminded me of that. Um, that's uh, that's all the notes I have right now. I'll get my line. Much obliged, uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have totally missed out on. If you've not shared yet, proceed. Hi, Justin. Can I be heard? Greetings, Draftomania. Hi, greetings, Justin. Greetings to all the, uh, the rest of the callers. Um, the, um, as far as the, the purpose of the book or why I felt that it was important to read the book, because I did find it was constructive because of, um, at the time when I was um, listening, I didn't read the book, I listened to the audio book. And um, when I was listening to the audio book, I was going through, um, and I still am going through some being terrorized um, and going through some stalking situations uh, at one of the jobs that I was working at. And um, I was getting help from uh, workplace racism and um, also the contemporary uh, calling. And also, being a victim of um, violence and growing up in, around in those types of surroundings, unfortunately, I can identify with a lot of um, the things that he's saying. Um, as far as like growing up in, in those types of in that type of environment, but one of the things that ha- that happens is um, um, I was taught to um, minimize my um, intuition, not listen to my intuition. Um, doubt myself, not being sure uh, if I, what I think is real, um, you know, being told that what I think is not, you know, uh, you know, being told that maybe it's, you know, you should, you know, don't pay it any mind or it's nothing, you know, and then, um, you know, just getting to a point in my life to learning how to trust myself and not um, minimize when I see things, when I start to the um, signs and uh, signs and traits of people's behaviors, red flags, um, that I need to pay that attention because um, for a long time I had not been doing that. And it has gotten me, you know, in situations that, like he was saying in the book, that if had I would just listen to what, you know, when I got that feeling that something was wrong. Um, instead of um, uh, running maybe outside of myself and asking somebody else what they thought, just learning how to trust myself, maybe, you know, I could have prevented that situation. You know what I mean? So that's why I felt that this book was um, important. Um, and also, Mr. Fuller um, always said that we must, like, it's the, the uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, the, uh, your intuition is like a... Um, a sign from, you know, the creators in the universe trying to tell you that you need to listen and pay attention. You know, um, sometimes when you have an intuition about something 
everybody else may think that this individual is okay. I like when he said, um, uh, a person being nice is not an indication of, um, you know, them being a nice person. You know, those are tactics that individual that predators use to, you know, gain your confidence to, so they can, you know, do what they want, what they plan to do to you. So I have experienced all of those types of um, um, uh, situations in my life. And I just thought that it was some valuable information because it was coming from, it's coming from a man um, that is um, an ex-FBI agent. Um, he works with, um, you know, um, he has a firm. And um, I also did uh, notice throughout the book um, that he was basically focusing on females, but we know um, Tommy Curry um, that, you know, and I can go for, you know, from what I've seen throughout my, my own life, um, that that's not, it's not just a one, uh, one-sided uh, street where it's just uh, men attacking women, even though that may be the, you know, uh, you know, uh, statistically, that may be the you know the case. Um, there's more violence, but it's not to say that um, we know that violence is uh, is being done to men also. So um, I just thought that um, it was just instructive information. He's going to get um, information of, of of things that we can do, um, tactics and skills that we can learn in order to um, be able to pay better attention to um, when we do see signs when when certain things are happening. That, it, that may be an indication that this may be something that you might need to pay attention to. So that's why um, I thought that this was a structured book. Um, and that's all I have. Much obliged, Draftomania. When you read it, if I could ask really quick the first time, when you read it, uh, did you have any connection to racism, white supremacy, or was it just, oh, okay, the violence information, and that is important, but like uh, his concept of political correctness, did any of that stand out when you read it the first time? You know, um, I'm, I don't know if it stood out to me the first time because, um, you know, I'm still learning. And But it, it was some things that he did say within, within the book that I, I you know, um, I thought was um, an indication of some racism being practiced on his part. Um, and that's going to come throughout later on in the book. Um, so we'll be able to, you know, I guess you and the callers will be able to, um, you know, uh, make a, you know, analysis of that. But um, I'm quite sure as, uh, um, as uh, on point as these, um, the callers and uh, this group is, I know that, you know, they'll pick up on it also. It was just certain things that he was saying that just didn't, um, you know, it just sounds, you know, a little, you know, racist or what have you. But um, like I said, I, I like doing the reading with the group because I get an opportunity to get analysis of and get other people's input, you know, and get a counter-racist um, perspective on what I might have already read, you know. So that's, that's helping me to grow and become more... Um, That is the goal for myself as well. I'm pretty sure uh, many of the other listeners, maybe all of them, hopefully, uh, that's the same goal, still learning and trying to improve uh, as counter-racists so that we can ultimately solve this problem permanently and do so quickly. 
Uh, other folks who dialed in, much obliged, Straptomania. So we had one person answer the question about why this book, uh, the constructive value of this book, and why they thought maybe this is something that Cal's listeners should check out. I will ask uh, Emmy and any other folks who've read this in advance, I'll ask them as well. Uh, Star 6-1, if other folks are with us and you have questions, comments to share. Uh, the I have the Kindle edition again at the beginning. There's a forward that was not included in the audio segment. Uh, and I, I wrote in the description uh, promoting this broadcast, I said that uh, Mr. DeGavin has benefited greatly from Oprah Winfrey's uh, media conglomerate uh, under the system, which I think he and uh, many other suspected racists have uh, when she has them on their show, her show, and uh, is promoting their book. She has her own book club that is extraordinarily popular and, you know, can sell uh, probably millions of copies just having her and her, you know, flock of whites uh, on to say, oh, yeah, this is a great book, blah, blah, blah. So it says in 2009, when Oprah Winfrey uh, kindly dedicated an hour-long show to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the publication of this book, how many times does Oprah Winfrey devote an entire hour show to one book? Did she devote an hour show to The Warmth of Other Suns? Because I think that book is way better than this one, but continuing. My publisher rushed to get a bunch more copies into print. They put out two editions, including one with a slightly revised cover taken all together. The Gift of Fear has been published in 25 editions, including the first hardback, several paperback versions, two audiobooks, and at least 15 foreign language versions. Now, for books that are big time bestsellers, I've seen that as well, where there might be a blurb about, oh man, you know, we've had millions of copies and this book is in. Dutch and French and Spanish and blah, blah, blah. They'll, you know, give you the whole spiel. Uh, but something about that reminds me uh, a lot uh, wisdom of psychopaths and the ego of racist man, racist woman that, you know, I have done such work that people from all over the world want to work with me and hire me, governments and all of these famous people. And my book has been published. Uh, I've sold about a billion copies and it's in a hundred different languages all over the world. People want this book because I am an expert white man. That's very much what it reeked of. Uh, and it's even not even just starting with how hell, I mean, because this is a serious subject matter. He's talking about people being raped and mugged and, you know, all the rest with the violence. But I mean, it doesn't start with that. It starts with, you know, Oprah had me on her show for an hour for the 10 year anniversary of our book. You know, I'm an expert white, but that's just the way it felt to me. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, other folks, if you don't see anything off putting about that, feel free. Um, let's see. Mm. Uh, I thought the information about, because he says it in the preface part that I read that's not in the audio book, and then he actually says it, uh, that this book is very much uh, written from the perspective uh, that females are more often uh, victims of violence uh, and system of racism, white supremacy. Certainly, you have lots of white women who are abused by white men. Absolutely. And there are a lot of non-white females who are abused by non-white males. Absolutely. All of that said, with no argument, we are still in a system of racism, white supremacy. I'm so glad uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry's The Man Not already mentioned top 10 book uh, that has also been read uh, on the book club, where I thought he made the point uh, importantly that black males especially are not able to function as patriarchs 
black males frequently where you see a lot of this violence it is bi-directional that was what he talked about exactly uh in the text and then uh cited a lot of examples uh evidence to support that point so i do think that that is very important and i am extraordinarily uh resistant to any sort of uh analysis assessment whether it's just focused on the u.s or even global where white men and their conduct is going to be compared to black males it is not the same at all and we couldn't have a system of racism white supremacy and have white men functioning identical to non-white males that would mean we don't have a system of racism we have what they've been saying we got a system of patriarchy or whatever that is all of that's it uh let's see i thought it was interesting and i still have not i've read it several times and i've heard him read it uh, the narrator uh, read it two or three times at this point, and I still am not uh, I'm not processing. My brain might be on holiday with everybody else. Uh, but he says, I explore capital punishment here. Oh, well, let me. Our criminal justice system often lacks justice and more often lacks reason. For example, America has about three hundred three thousand people slated for execution more by far than any time in world history yet the most frequent cause of death listed for these inmates is natural causes that's because we execute fewer than two percent of those sentenced to die it is actually safer for these men to live on death row than to live in some american neighborhoods i explore capital punishment here not to promote it for i am not an advocate but rather because our attitude toward it raises a question that is key to this book are we really serious about fighting crime and violence often it appears we are not here's just one example of what we accept if you add up how long their victims would otherwise have lived our country's murderers rob us of almost a million years of human life every year that second paragraph specifically but really the whole thing it confused me greatly. I'm not really sure because he says he's not an advocate, but it very much sounds like someone who's saying that they see a problem and maybe even see it as evidence that we are not serious about dealing with so-called crime and especially violent crime if we're not really executing people. We execute uh, fewer than 2% of the folks on death row. I don't know how other people processed this portion, but it confused me greatly. And this is one of those because I already know that this guy is someone who complains about political correctness. This type of paragraph is one I would star. Anytime that I hear anything that sounds like it could be creeping towards a white person complaining that we're not really tough on crime. We're not really serious. I mean, that almost sounds like what I heard from that guy in the White House in 2016. You know, we got disrespect of our enforcement officials. We are going to be tough on it. Almost sounds like that's the direction that it's going. <sighs> Maybe I'm wrong. I said I have str I struggled to process that, so maybe I just didn't get it. If any other listeners read that and feel like they got an accurate understanding, please share. Next. Uh, the fear portion, I thought what uh, Draftomania talked about was uh, critical uh, because we are in a system of racism. And I guess that's one thing that I would have to uh, even pause. We are in a system of white supremacy when i say at the beginning of the program today we're starting this book the gift of fear survival tactics survival signal excuse me that protect us from violence today is july 4 
battle simulation. That's what we are battling with. Hot dogs, hamburgers, and people sitting outside. It's not firecrackers. That is battle simulation. They do a little uh, talking about the Revolutionary War and we had to go fight the British white people fighting with other white people. That is a big part of what this day is all about. It is connected. This very holiday is connected to violence. We are in a system that mandates violence, celebrates violence, the movies, the films, all of it. And white people, they're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. They're not ignorant about violence that their system mandates. So that's one. This book already now we have not, we've read one chapter. This book reminds me very much of Kevin Dutton, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Kind of from a different perspective because that book we were learning from the perpetrators. This time we're allegedly learning from the victims. But it very much reminds me of that book and it's just (laughs) this system of white supremacy loving violence all of the movies, the films, the, just everything about it, uh, the culture, uh, the white culture, white supremacy culture that demand that appetite for violence to have a book like this be a bestseller. I'm not surprised that The Wisdom of Psychopaths, big time hit. I'm not surprised that this book was a big time hit. Uh, all of that continue. Well, I guess one other uh, quick thought, just I appreciate the information. I am learning. I think myself and many others, we have been conditioned to ignore harm, signals of danger, especially from white people, especially from white people uh, or conditioned to ignore and minimize those cues. That said, if this book is going to be a lot of white women, I don't know who most of the people that he talks to are, but the prominent voice in this first section was this white woman uh, who was raped and attacked, almost killed, she said. That is going to be something that I am going to be alert on. I tend to try to be very guarded about doing a whole lot of empathizing, sympathizing uh, with white people, period, regardless of what the circumstance is. Uh, I think Mr. Demi Ford was talking about this can easily kind of push us off into that narrative about the scary nigger is going to rape me, which has been throughout rampant throughout the history of racism, white supremacy. So that is something that I'm going to be mindful about. Uh, just a lot of empathizing with suspected race soldiers uh be alert for that uh back to specifics from the text the portion where he talked about people not wanting to deal with how violent things are worldwide not just in the united states how much violence exists and saying that they're oh we'll just leave it to the police to deal with this problem or solve this that is very much the voice of a white person bland what i mean by that all the different problems, I think Henry in Chicago talked about all of the different problems that uh, black people, non-white people have worldwide, whether it's enforcement officials or otherwise. When these issues happen, I don't think you could have a victim of racism, especially a black person. Imagine the family of Eric Garner, insert you know name of victim, but imagine the family of Eric Garner. Uh, imagine the family of Tamir Rice or anybody. Oh, yeah, we've had these problems. We're not going to leave it in police and we're going to deal with this ourselves. Imagine any black people, even if they don't have a family member that's a victim of direct violence. Imagine themselves. We do not rely on enforcement officials to solve our problems. We handle it ourselves. New militant 
Negroes, black identity extremists will be added to the uh, local police registry and rounded up for detention. Uh, talk about Guantanamo Bay. That's what I would expect to happen uh, if black people took that sort of stance. Please insert if, you know, I'm talking illogical. Next. The portion, I don't know if I thought it was dated or I don't, this was another one where I didn't, I didn't know what to make of it. He said, uh, husbands chide their wives about feminine intuition and don't take it seriously. If intuition is used by a woman to explain some choice she made or concern she can't let go of, men roll their eyes and write it off. Uh, Draftomania is here. If we have other females uh, who are listening, is that true? I don't even know if people use that term anymore. That's why I said it almost felt kind of dated. I don't really hear like 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, teens saying, oh, yeah, I used my feminine intuition and blocked that fella on, you know, Snapchat or whatever it was because I didn't feel right. I don't I don't hear them using that sort of language. Uh, this book is older. He's an older author. I don't even hear that uh, anymore. Do I don't even know what the word substitute for that would be uh, for a female that I'm having whatever feminine thought is telling me something is awry with this and it's being disparaged or devalued specifically because it is a female thought or what. Like I said, I had that was another one. I just had to put an asterisk next to don't know what to make of that one. I'll see if other listeners uh, processed it and see if people even use that term and or if females feel that this happens to them. I would appreciate hearing that. Uh, oh, we got a female caller right now. Let's hear it. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay. Um, I was going to say, yeah, um, I've had that um, experience that happening to me before. I've had it done by my um, my ex-husband. Um, and, um, yeah, um, it's, I, I can say that I've, I've experienced that. They may not, you know, they I've still heard of, uh, it said that women are, um, you know, too emotional and too sensitive. So I still hear that type of rhetoric, you know. Um, although it's 2018, um, and, you know, the whole gender, you know, war is going on and everything is supposed to be not about gender, but I have still uh, heard that. And, um actually been blamed and, um, uh, you know, um, kind of like um, ridiculed um, because, um, you know, I've, I've talked about things that have happened to me and then um, because, you know, the individual didn't want to deal with it or wanted to support me, um, basically just like blamed me. And, uh, yeah, so that is true. Um, I've had some experience with that, unfortunately. I don't know if they say it like that now, but it's still basically the same premise, I would assume. Much obliged, Draftomania. Thank you for sharing. I am still learning myself, said that before. Uh, I would think at minimum, yeah, feminine intuition isn't being used, but that does not sound so unfamiliar, saying uh, females are emotional or you're too emotional about how you're processing a situation that yes i've heard that that i can process no problem uh let's see can i be heard retired firefighter okay because I, I was i was just uh making sure that uh you didn't uh have to block me because i was interrupted by a phone call 
that I had to be on. Um, but uh, was did anybody uh, answer that question that I was asking? Yes, it was answered. Oh, I I, I was I was on the, I was on another line. I had to go. I had to go to another line. Uh, could you give a brief summary of it, of what it was? The answer. Uh, Draftomania. Uh, she spoke for uh, quite a bit uh, with some in-depth uh, reasons behind why she thought this would be a constructive text. I guess the the quick, uh, probably not doing it justice, boiled down. Um, she thought that victims, uh, non-white people. Uh, we are mistreated. We are harmed all the time in the system of racism. And this book gives it's supposed to be about giving cues uh, for people to recognize when they might be in danger and that we could benefit from it, uh, that she had been uh, harmed, as all of us have been in some ways, uh, had been harmed earlier. And so that was how she kind of got interested in the book and did have some helpful, constructive uh, info. That's kind of my rough paraphrase of what she had to say. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed, I was looking at my notes and then uh, now I looked at the clock. The second audio segment is a little longer than it normally is. So we have about six minutes before we get to the second audio clip. So I'll pause. But any other folks have comments, questions that they wanted to share? Soon, folks are still getting it together for the second audio segment and or enjoying the displays if you're out gallivanting uh, in the summer sunshine fun. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Yes, sir. Proceed. Yeah, I one other thing. I was wondering if anyone else on the line was alarmed to find out that the United States is such a, well, not only a violent nation, but the, uh, the death, the murders, and uh, the amount of guns that, <clears throat> I mean, I guess none of those statistics alarm anyone, but other countries, uh, uh, it, it seems strange to me that, you know, other countries don't deal with this type of thing. There's too many guns out there, it seems to me. I, I'll leave my line on that. Much obliged. That, at least in my view, I think that is directly related to racism, white supremacy, with the high number of uh, non-white people that you have in this part of the world and the history uh, specific of how racism, white supremacy has been practiced in this part of the world. They had uh, laws in specific regions of what they call the United States where uh, white men explicitly uh, were legally required to be armed uh, to protect and defend the system of white supremacy. We talked about that uh, in the archives on this program. That's in Ariella Gross's book, uh, What Blood Won't Tell, uh, and others, I think, but I know that one uh, off top. Uh, so I think that's a huge uh, contributing factor uh, to it. And uh, even some of the other books that uh, programs that we've done where we've talked about even the white obsession with guns, uh, just looking at that over the years, it's directly related to racism, white supremacy, whether it's 1960s changing uh, gun laws when black people look like they might 
want to be armed and do something about racism, white supremacy and or uh, changing it so that white people can have easier, better access to their firearms to make sure that they can defend themselves from uppity niggers like President Obama, the former. Uh, but lots of it. That's I think even because uh, these type of statistics, these even white people are not stunned about these. They brought out a lot of these the same information in uh What's that fellow from Michigan? Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore, suspected racist. He brought out a lot of this information in that movie about how we, they have all this violence here and all the guns and they don't have any of that there. And he related a lot of it to racism, white supremacy and how it's evolved in this part of the world and how that's been a part of the violence. So, again, I don't think white people are ignorant uh, about this, uh, even the violence amongst themselves. Uh, I think they just enjoy uh, it is almost entertainment uh, reading about uh, practicing, uh, fictionalizing violence in some way, shape, or form. Uh, they just, you know, it's regrettable if I end up being the person harmed today, but as long as we are accustomed to being the ones that are doing the harm in worldwide, hey, battle simulation, like I just said, July 4th. Uh, any other folks have commentary that they wanted to share? Uh, yes, to, uh, to, uh, come in the same line that, uh, Mr. Demery Ford was uh, speaking about uh, the origins of the white people in this part of the world that is called the United States was based on militias, you know, uh, like, you know, they, they were, these were like uh, fraternities, you know, they had so many of them. And plus they were surrounded by a whole lot of non-white people on top of it. Uh, and uh, they had to go about the means of taking uh, uh, what uh, uh, these non-white people had. Uh, and that spirit, that, that functioning is never left from white people, in the, especially in this part of the world. Uh, the moment that, quote unquote, guns are taken away from them, is actually is the overturning of the global system of racism and white supremacy. You know, before that happens, they 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 will not give up firearms, especially in this part of the world. You know, places like Europe, they 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 have fought each other to a to a point to to you know to certain points and whatnot. But they even even it's a difference from the the violent reactions of white people in this part of the world as opposed to Europe. Uh, that's different for the very reasons what I'm, what I think I'm stating is that it's because that that's just a known habit in this part of the world where, you know, with militias and whatnot, that sort of thing, they, they love their guns and, and they, uh, they, uh, will not, you know, give them up. That's for sure. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. And again, that just goes back to uh, my point about the statement that uh, the author, Mr. DeBecker, made in the text uh, saying that uh, many people, uh, people, it would seem he was saying they were foolish to think, oh, I'm not going to be concerned about violence. I'll leave it to the authorities to deal with that. And I'm saying, oh, no, you got to stick up for yourself. You can't do that. There's so much violence that this is something that could end up on your doorstep one day. So you have to be prepared. That, again, is thinking like a white man the system of white supremacy does not allow black females or black males to say oh yeah 
I'm going to step up and take charge. Anything happens, any violence happens, oh no, I'm not going to call the man. I got it. That is not the system of white supremacy. We'll stop there. So we're chapter two. Uh, Mr. Uh, retired firefighter asked about uh, intuition. I said that is the very title of chapter two, the technology of intuition. That is where we'll begin context of white supremacy. This is audio segment number two. If we didn't get to you or if you have additional thoughts, questions, make a note. We will have ample time once we are done. Chapter two. Chapter two. The technology of intuition. Technology is not going to save us. Our computers, our tools, our machines are not enough. We have to rely on our intuition, our true being. Joseph Campbell. I walked into that convenience store to buy a few magazines, and for some reason I was suddenly afraid, and I turned right around and walked out. I don't know what told me to leave, but later that day I heard about the shooting. Airline pilot Robert Thompson is telling me about dodging death right here on the ground. I ask him what he saw, what he reacted to. Nothing. It was just a gut feeling. A pause. Well, now that I think back, the guy behind the counter looked at me with a very rapid glance, just jerked his head toward me for an instant. And I guess I'm used to the clerk sizing you up when you walk in, but he was intently looking at another customer, and that must have seemed odd to me. I must have seen that he was concerned. When free of judgment, we inherently respect the intuition of others. Sensing that someone else is in that special state of assessing hazard, we are alerted, just as when we see the cat or dog awaken suddenly from a nap and stare intently into a dark hallway. Thompson continues, I noticed that the clerk was focused on a customer who was wearing a big, heavy jacket, and, of course, I now realize that it was very hot, so that's probably where the guy was hiding the shotgun. Only after I saw on the news what kind of car they were looking for did I remember that there were two men sitting in a station wagon in the parking lot with the engine running. Now it's all clear, but it didn't mean a thing to me at the time. Actually, it did then, too, I tell him. Combining what amounted to fear on the face of the clerk, with the man in the heavy coat on the hot day, with the men in the car with its engine running, with Thompson's unconscious knowledge of convenience store robberies from years of news reports, with his unconscious memory of frequent police visits to that store, which he'd driven past hundreds of times, and with countless other things we might never discover about Thompson's experience and knowledge, it's no wonder he left that store just moments before a police officer happened in and was shot dead by a man he surprised in the middle of a robbery. What Robert Thompson and many others want to dismiss as a coincidence or a gut feeling is in fact a cognitive process, faster than we recognize and far different from the familiar step-by-step -step thinking we rely on so willingly. We think conscious thought is somehow better, when in fact, intuition is soaring flight compared to the plodding of logic. Nature's greatest accomplishment, the human brain, is never more efficient or invested than when its host is at risk. Then, intuition is catapulted to another level entirely, a height at which it can accurately be called graceful, even miraculous. Intuition 
is the journey from A to Z without stopping at any other letter along the way. It is knowing without knowing why. At just the moment when our intuition is most basic, people tend to consider it amazing or supernatural. A woman tells a simple story as if it were mystical. I couldn't believe it. I absolutely knew when the phone rang that it would be my college roommate calling after all these years. Though people act as if predictions of who is calling are miraculous, they rarely are. In this case, her old roommate was reminded of her by reports of the explosion of the space shuttle. Is it a miracle that both women happened to watch the same news event along with a billion others? Is it a miracle that their strongest association with space travel was the angry belief they shared in college that women would never be astronauts? And a woman astronaut died in the space shuttle explosion that morning, and the two women thought of each other even after a decade. These non-critical intuitions, which at first impress us, are often revealed to be somewhat rudimentary, especially in contrast to what the mind delivers when we might be in danger. In A Natural History of the Senses, author Diane Ackerman says, The brain is a good stagehand. It gets on with its work while we're busy acting out our scenes. When we see an object, the whole peninsula of our senses wakes up to appraise the new sight. All the brain's shopkeepers consider it from their point of view. All the civil servants, all the accountants, all the students, all the farmers, all the mechanics. We could add the soldiers and guards to Ackerman's list, for it's they who evaluate the context in which things occur, the appropriateness, the significance of literally everything we sense. These soldiers and guards separate the merely unusual from the significantly unusual. They weigh the time of day, day of the week, loudness of the sound, quickness of the movement, flavor of the scent, smoothness of the surface, the entire mosaic of each moment. They discard the irrelevant and value the meaningful. They recognize the survival signals we don't even consciously know are signals. After years of praising intuition as the cornerstone of safety, I just recently learned to my surprise and appreciation that the root of the word intuition, tueri, means to guard, to protect. That's what it did for Robert Thompson. Shaken by his narrow miss, he later wondered why the police officer didn't intuit what he did. It may be that the officer saw different things. Thompson saw only one car in the parking lot, but the officer saw two, likely giving the appearance of a business patronized by a few customers. Though the clerk's face had sent Thompson a fear signal, the police officer probably saw relief in that same face as he entered the store. It's also likely that the seasoned officer suffered the disadvantage that sometimes comes with being expert at something. He was operating with the accurate, but in this case misleading, knowledge that armed robberies are less frequent in the daytime than at night. Many experts lose the creativity and imagination of the less informed. They're so intimately familiar with known patterns that they may fail to recognize or respect the importance of the new wrinkle. The process of applying expertise is, after all, the editing out of unimportant details in favor of those known to be relevant. Zen master Shunryu Suzuki said, The mind of the beginner is empty, free of the habits of the expert, 
ready to accept, to doubt, and open to all the possibilities. People enjoying so-called beginner's luck prove this all the time. Even men of science rely on intuition, both knowingly and unknowingly. The problem is, we discourage them from doing it. Imagine that you go to see a doctor, a specialist in some particular malady, and before you even sit down in his examining room, he says, You're fine. Please pay my receptionist on the way out. You might understandably feel that the opinion he rendered intuitively was not worth paying for, though it might be the exact same diagnosis you would get after his poking and prodding you with fancy equipment. A friend of mine who's a doctor has to prove his scientific acumen to patients before they'll accept his intuition. I call it the tap dance. After I do a few steps, patients say, Okay, I see you can dance, and then they believe me. The amateur at the convenience store teaches us that intuition heeded is far more valuable than simple knowledge. Intuition is a gift we all have, whereas retention of knowledge is a skill. Rare is the expert who combines an informed opinion with a strong respect for his own intuition and curiosity. Curiosity is, after all, the way we answer when intuition whispers, there's something there. I use it all the time in my work because it can unlock information that clients are hiding from themselves. Often I will carry a conversation back to details a client provided but then rushed past. I'm particularly interested in those that are not required elements of the story, those that might seem unimportant, but for the fact that they were mentioned. I call these extra details satellites, shot off into space, later to beam back valuable information. I always follow them. A client who recounted getting anonymous death threats after a long and contentious lawsuit felt quite certain they were from the man she had sued, but her story included some extra details. After the case was settled, I knew that the guy we'd sued was still really angry, but I was surprised he would stoop to sending me death threats. I was discussing the settlement one day with Tony. He used to be an intern for my lawyer, but he's not working for my lawyer anymore. Anyway, I said to him, I hope the case being over really ends the matter, and I thought it would. But then the threat letters started coming. What's the satellite in the story? I was discussing the settlement one day with Tony. He used to be an intern for my lawyer, but he's not working for my lawyer anymore. These details about a person my client made a remark to are not key elements in the story, but her inclusion of them was a signal for me. Tell me about the guy who used to work for your lawyer. Oh, Tony? He got fired. One of the many casualties of the case, I guess. He was so sweet to me. He'd taken a real interest in the case, but apparently he'd let other responsibilities slide. Even after he was fired, he kept coming to court to give me support, which I really appreciated. When the case settled, my lawyer threw a party for us all, but Tony wasn't invited. It was sad, because he called me and said, I hope we can still stay in touch, even though the case is over. A pause. You don't think... My client then described several odd things Tony had done, followed by the revelation, more accurately, the recollection, that Tony had once told her he was helping an acquaintance who was getting threats from an ex-boyfriend. 
So an extraneous character in a story, a seemingly unimportant detail, became a suspect, and ultimately the proven threatener. On some level, my client knew all along he was the best suspect, but she denied it, preferring to indict her nasty opponent over her friendly ally. How many times have you said, after following one course, I knew I shouldn't have done that? That means you got the signal and then didn't follow it. We all know how to respect intuition, though often not our own. For example, people tend to invest all kinds of intuitive ability in dogs, a fact I was reminded of recently when a friend told me this story. Ginger had a really bad reaction to our new building contractor. She even growled at him. She seemed to sense that he isn't trustworthy, so I'm going to get some bids from other people. That must be it, I joked with her. The dog feels you should get another general contractor because this one's not honest. The irony, I explained, is that it's far more likely Ginger is reacting to your signals than that you are reacting to hers. Ginger is an expert at reading you, and you are the expert at reading other people. Ginger, smart as she is, knows nothing about the ways a contractor might inflate the cost to his own profit, or about whether he is honest, or about the benefits of cost plus 15% versus a fixed bid, or about the somewhat hesitant recommendation you got from a former client of that builder, or about the too-fancy car he arrived in, or about the slick but evasive answer he gave to your pointed question. My friend laughed at the revelation that Ginger, whose intuition she was quick to overrate, is actually a babbling idiot when it comes to remodel work. In fact, Ginger is less than that, because she can't even babble. If there are dogs out there intuitive enough to detect what's being read here by their masters, I take it all back. Contrary to what people believe about the intuition of dogs, your intuitive abilities are vastly superior. And given that you add to your experience every day, you are at the top of your form right now. Ginger does sense and react to fear in humans because she knows instinctively that a frightened person or animal is more likely to be dangerous, but she has nothing you don't have. The problem, in fact, is that extra something you have that a dog doesn't. It is judgment, and that's what gets in the way of your perception and intuition. With judgment comes the ability to disregard your intuition unless you can explain it logically, the eagerness to judge and convict your feelings rather than honor them. Ginger is not distracted by the way things could be, used to be, or should be. She perceives only what is. Our reliance on the intuition of dogs is often a way to find permission to have an opinion we might otherwise be forced to call, God forbid, unsubstantiated. Can you imagine an animal reacting to the gift of fear the way some people do, with annoyance and disdain instead of attention? No animal in the wild, suddenly overcome with fear, would spend any of its mental energy thinking, it's probably nothing. Yet we chide ourselves for even momentarily giving validity to the feeling that someone is behind us on a seemingly empty street, or that someone's unusual behavior might be sinister. Instead of being grateful to have a powerful internal resource, grateful for the self-care, instead of entertaining the possibility that our minds might actually be working for us and not just playing tricks on us, we rush to ridicule the impulse. We, in contrast to every other creature in nature, 
choose not to explore and even to ignore survival signals. The mental energy we use searching for the innocent explanation to everything could more constructively be applied to evaluating the environment for important information. Every day, people engaged in the clever defiance of their own intuition become, in mid-thought, victims of violence and accidents. So when we wonder why we are victims so often, the answer is clear. It's because we are so good at it. A woman could offer no greater cooperation to her soon-to-be attacker than to spend her time telling herself, but he seems like such a nice man. Yet this is exactly what many people do. A woman is waiting for an elevator, and when the doors open, she sees a man inside who causes her apprehension. Since she's not usually afraid, it may be the late hour, his size, the way he looks at her, the rate of attacks in the neighborhood. An article she read a year ago, it doesn't matter why. The point is, she gets a feeling of fear. How does she respond to nature's strongest survival signal? She suppresses it, telling herself, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to insult this guy by letting the door close in his face. When the fear doesn't go away, she tells herself not to be so silly, and she gets into the elevator. Now, which is sillier, waiting a moment for the next elevator or getting into a soundproofed steel chamber with a stranger she's afraid of? Even when intuition speaks in the clearest terms, even when the message gets through, we may still seek an outside opinion before we'll listen to ourselves. There is a story about a psychiatrist whose patient reported, Recently, when my wife goes to bed, I find some excuse to stay downstairs until she's asleep. If she's still awake when I get to our room, I'll stay in the bathroom for a long time so that I'm sure she's asleep by the time I get into bed. Do you think I'm unconsciously trying to avoid having sex with my wife? The psychiatrist astutely asked, What was the unconscious part? When victims explained to me after the fact that they unconsciously knew they were in danger, I could ask the same question. What was the unconscious part? The strange way people evaluate risk sheds some light on why we often choose not to avoid danger. We tend to give our full attention to risks that are beyond our control, air crashes, nuclear plant disasters, while ignoring those we feel in charge of, dying from smoking, poor diet, car accidents, even though the latter are far more likely to harm us. In Why the Reckless Survive, Dr. Melvin Connor's exceptional book about you and me and all other human beings, he points out that we drink and drive without our seat belts and light up another cigarette and then cancel the trip to Europe on the one-in-a-million chance of an Arab terrorist attack. Many Americans who wouldn't travel to see the pyramids for fear of being killed in Egypt stay home, where the danger is twenty times greater. While we knowingly volunteer for some risks, we object to those imposed on us by others. Connor notes that we seem to be saying, if I want to smoke myself to death, it's my own business, but if some company is trying to put something over on me with asbestos or nerve gas, I'll be furious. We'll tolerate familiar risks over strange ones. The hijacking of an American jet in Athens looms larger in our concern than the parent who kills a child, even though one happens rarely and the other happens daily. We deny because we're built to see what we want to see. In his book, The Day the Universe Changed, 
Historian James Burke points out that it is the brain which sees, not the eye. Reality is in the brain before it is experienced, or else the signals we get from the eye would make no sense. This truth underscores the value of having the pieces of the violence puzzle in our heads before we need them, for only then can we recognize survival signals. We certainly care enough about this topic to learn the signals. A Harris poll reveals that an overwhelming majority of Americans perceives the greatest risks in the area of crime and personal safety. If this is true, then we must ask some new questions about violence and about ourselves. For example, is it reasonable that we know more about why a man buys a particular brand of shaving lotion than about why he buys a gun? And why are we fascinated when a famous person is attacked by a stalker, which happens once every two or three years, yet uninterested when a woman is killed by a stalking husband or boyfriend, which happens once every two hours? Why does America have thousands of suicide prevention centers and not one homicide prevention center? And why do we worship hindsight, as in the news media's constant rehash of the day, the week, the year, and yet distrust foresight, which actually might make a difference in our lives? One reason is that we don't have to develop our own predictive skills in a world where experts will tell us what to do. Catherine, a young woman of 27, asks me, the expert, a question nearly all women in our society must consider. How can I tell if a man I date is turning into a problem? Is there a checklist of warning signs about stalkers? Instead of answering her question directly, I ask her to give me an example of what she means. Well, she says, I dated this guy named Brian who got sort of obsessed with me and wouldn't let go when I wanted to stop seeing him. We met at a party of a friend of mine and he must have asked somebody there for my number. Before I even got home, he'd left me three messages. I told him I didn't want to go out with him, but he was so enthusiastic about it that I really didn't have any choice. In the beginning, he was super attentive, always seemed to know what I wanted. It was flattering, but it also made me a little uncomfortable. Like when I mentioned needing more space for my books, he showed up one day with shelves and all the stuff and just put them up. I couldn't say no. And he read so much into whatever I said. Once... He asked if I'd go to a basketball game with him, and I said, maybe. He later said, you promised. Also, he talked about serious things so early, like living together and marriage and children. He started with jokes about that stuff the first time we went out, and later, he wasn't joking. Or when he suggested that I have a phone in my car, I wasn't sure I even wanted a car phone. But he borrowed my car one day and just had one installed. It was a gift. So what could I say? And of course he called me whenever I was in the car, and he was so adamant that I never speak to my ex-boyfriend on that car phone. Later he got angry if I spoke to my ex at all. Finally, when I told him I didn't want to be his girlfriend, he refused to hear it. He basically insisted that I stay in a relationship with him. And when I wouldn't, he forced me into a relationship of sorts by always calling, showing up, sending gifts talking to my friends, coming to my work, uninvited. We'd only known each other for about a month, but he acted like it was the most important relationship of his life. So what are the warning signs of that kind of guy? Catherine had, of course, answered her own question. 
more on date stalking in Chapter 11. My best advice might not have been satisfying to her. Listen to yourself. Experts rarely tell us we already know the answers. Just as we want their checklist, they want our check. Perhaps the greatest experts at day-to-day high-stakes predictions are police officers. Those with experience on the streets have learned about violence and its warning signs, but unchecked denial can eclipse all that knowledge. Police survival expert Michael Cantrell learned this many times in his career. When Cantrell was in his fourth year as a policeman, his partner, whom I'll call David Patrick, told him about a dream he'd had in which one of us gets shot. Well, you should pay close attention to that dream, Cantrell responded, because it isn't going to be me. Patrick brought up the topic again, announcing one day, I'm sure I will be shot. Cantrell came to believe him, particularly given Patrick's lax officer survival strategies. On one of their rides together, they pulled over a car with three men inside. Though the driver was cordial, Cantrell intuitively felt danger because the other two men just stared straight ahead. He was dismayed that his partner wasn't alert to the possible hazards and seemed more interested in getting a pipe lit as he stood at the side of the patrol car. Cantrell asked the driver to get out of the car, and as the man opened the door, Cantrell saw a handgun on the floor and yelled out, Gun! to his partner, but Patrick still did not respond attentively. They survived that hazard, but unable to shake the feeling that his partner's premonition was an accurate prediction, Cantrell eventually discussed it with his supervisor. The sergeant told him that he was overreacting. Each of the several times Cantrell asked to discuss it, the sergeant chided him. Look, in all my time with the department, I've never even drawn my gun, and we haven't had a shooting here for as long as I can remember. On one of Cantrell's days off, Patrick sat with other officers at the patrol briefing, listening to the description of two men who had been involved in several armed robberies. Within a few hours, Patrick, riding alone, observed two men who fit the description discussed in the briefing. One of them stood at a payphone, but didn't appear to be talking to anyone. The other man repeatedly walked over and looked into the window of the supermarket. Patrick had more than enough reason to call for backup, but may have been concerned that he'd be embarrassed if it turned out these weren't the wanted criminals. The men saw Patrick, and they walked off down the street. He followed alongside in his patrol car. Without calling in any description or request for assistance, he waved the men over. Patrick got out of his car and asked one of them to turn around for a pat-down. Even though Patrick had seen enough to be suspicious, even though he recognized and consciously considered that these might be the two wanted men, he still continued to ignore the survival signals. When he finally registered a signal of great danger from the man next to him, it was much too late to act on. Out of the corner of his eye, Patrick saw the slowly rising handgun that, an instant later, was fired into his face. The man pulled the trigger six times as Patrick fell. The second man produced a gun and shot Patrick once in the back. After the two criminals ran off, Patrick was able to get to his radio. When the tape of that radio call was played for Cantrell, he could clearly hear blood gurgling in Patrick's mouth as he gasped, I've been shot! I've been shot! Amazingly, Patrick recovered and went back to police work for a short while. 
still reluctant to take responsibility for his safety or his recklessness. He later told Cantrell, If you'd been with me, this wouldn't have happened. Remember that sergeant who accused Cantrell of overreacting? He had decided there was a low-level risk based on just two factors. He had never drawn his gun during his career, and none of the department's officers had been shot in recent memory. If this second factor were a valid predictor, then the shooting of Patrick would have changed the sergeant's evaluation of Hazard. Apparently, it didn't, because a few months later, he was himself shot in a convenience store. Cantrell has left law enforcement for the corporate world, but every week he volunteers his time to teach the gift of fear to police officers. People now listen to him when he tells them to listen to themselves. Aside from the outright denial of intuitive signals, there is another way to get into trouble. Our intuition fails when it is loaded with inaccurate information. Since we are the editors of what gets in and what is invested with credibility, it's important to evaluate our sources of information. I explained this during a presentation for hundreds of government threat assessors at the Central Intelligence Agency, making my point by drawing on a very rare safety hazard, kangaroo attacks. I told the audience that about 20 people a year are killed by the normally friendly animals and that kangaroos always display a specific set of indicators before they attack. One, they will give what appears to be a wide and genial smile. They're actually showing their teeth. Two, they will check their pouches compulsively several times to be sure they have no young with them. They never attack while carrying young. Three, they will look behind them, since they always retreat immediately after they kill. After these signals, they will lunge, brutally pummel an enemy, and gallop off. I asked two audience members to stand up and repeat back the three warning signs, and both flawlessly described the smile, the checking of the pouch for young, and the looking back for an escape route. In fact, everyone in that room, and now you, will remember those warning signs for life. If you are ever face to face with a kangaroo, be it tomorrow or decades from now, those three pre-incident indicators will be in your head. The problem, I told the audience at the CIA, is that I made up those signals. I did it to demonstrate the risks of inaccurate information. I actually know nothing about kangaroo behavior, so forget the three signals if you can, or stay away from hostile kangaroos. In our lives, we are constantly bombarded with kangaroo signals masquerading as knowledge, and our intuition relies on us to decide what we will give credence to. James Burke says, You are what you know. He explains that 15th century Europeans knew that everything in the sky rotated around the earth. Then Galileo's telescope changed that truth. Today, Burke notes, we live according to still another truth, and... Like the people of the past, we disregard phenomena which do not fit our view because they are wrong or outdated. Like our ancestors, we know the real truth. When it comes to safety, there is a lot of real truth to go around, and some of it puts people at risk. For example, is it always best for a woman being stalked by an ex-husband to get a restraining order? This certainly is the conventional wisdom. Yet women are killed every day by men they have court orders against. The often useless documents, 
found by police in the purse or pocket of the victims. More on this in Chapter 10. Perhaps the greatest false truth is that some people are just not intuitive, as if this key survival element was somehow left out of them. Cynthia is a substitute school teacher, a funny, beautiful woman, totally unlike the dull and much harassed substitutes most of us recall from our school years. One day while we were having lunch, Cynthia bemoaned to me that she just wasn't intuitive. I never see the signs until it's too late. I don't have that inner voice some people have. And yet, I reminded her, several times a week she enters a room full of six- and seven-year-old children she's never met before and quickly makes automatic, unconscious assessments of their future behavior. With amazing accuracy, she predicts who among thirty will seek to test her the most, who will encourage the other children to behave or misbehave, whom the other children will follow, what discipline strategies will work best, and on and on. That's true, she said. Every day I have to predict what the kids will do, and I succeed for reasons I can't explain. After a thoughtful pause, she added, but I can't predict the behavior of adults. This is interesting, because the range of behavior children might engage in is far, far greater than it is for adults. Few adults will suddenly throw something across the room and then break into uncontrolled laughter. Few women will, without apparent reason, lift their skirts above their heads or reach over to the next desk at work and grab the eyeglasses right off someone's face. Few adults will pour paint on the floor and then smear it around with their feet. Yet each of these behaviors is familiar to substitute teachers. Predicting the routine behavior of adults in the same culture is so simple, in fact, that we rarely even bother to do it consciously. We react only to the unusual, which is a signal that there might be something worth predicting. The man next to us on the plane for five hours gardeners little of our attention until, out of the corner of one eye, we see that he is reading the magazine in our hand. The point is that we intuitively evaluate people all the time, quite attentively. But they only get our conscious attention when there is a reason. We see it all, but we edit out most of it. Thus, when something does call out to us, we ought to pay attention. For many people, that is a muscle they don't exercise. At lunch, I told Cynthia I'd show her an example of listening to intuition. We were at a restaurant neither of us had been to before. The waiter was a slightly too subservient man, whom I took to be of Middle Eastern descent. I said, take our waiter, for example. I've never met him and don't know a thing about him, but I can tell you he's not just the waiter. He's actually the owner of this restaurant. He is from Iran, where his family ran successful restaurants before they moved to America. Because there was no expectation that I'd be right on any of this, I had simply said what came into my head. I thought I was making it up, creating it. More likely, I was calling it up, discovering it. Cynthia and I went on talking, but in my head I was tearing apart the theories I had just expressed with such certainty. Across the room I saw a print of an elephant on the wall and thought, oh, he's from India, not Iran. That makes sense, because an Iranian would be more assertive than this guy, and he's definitely not the owner. By the time he next visited our table, I'd concluded that all my predictions were wrong. I reluctantly asked him who owned the restaurant. I do. Is it your first place? Yes, but my family owns several successful restaurants in Iran. 
We sold them to come to America. Turning to Cynthia, he said, And you are from Texas. Cynthia, who has no Texas accent whatever, asked how he knew. You have Texas eyes. No matter how I so accurately guessed his status at the restaurant, his country of origin and his family history, and no matter how he knew Cynthia was from Texas, we did know. But is that methodology something I'd bet my life on? I do it every day, and so do you, and I'd have done no better with conscious logic. Cynthia also talked about what she called car body language, her ability to predict the likely movements of cars. I know when a car is about to edge over into my lane without signaling. I know when a car will or won't turn left in front of me. Most people gladly accept this ability and travel every day with absolute confidence in their car-reading skill. Clearly, they're actually expert at reading people, but because we can't see the whole person, we read his intent, level of attentiveness, competence, sobriety, caution, all through the medium of the tiny movements of that big metal object around him. So, we think, we can predict what kangaroos and children and cars might do, but we cannot predict human behavior to save our lives. China Leonard's story is not about violence. It is, however, about life and death and about the denial of intuition. She and her young son, Richard, had just settled into the pre-op room at St. Joseph's Hospital, where Richard was soon to have minor ear surgery. He usually had a barrage of questions for doctors, but when the anesthesiologist, Dr. Joseph Verbrugge, Jr., came into the room, the boy fell silent. He didn't even answer when Dr. Verbrugge asked if he was nervous. Look at me, the doctor demanded, but Richard didn't respond. The boy obviously disliked the abrupt and unpleasant doctor, and China felt the same way, but she also felt something more than that. A strong, intuitive impulse crossed her mind. Cancel the operation, it boldly said. Cancel the operation. She quickly suppressed that impulse and began a mental search for why it was unsound. Setting aside her intuition about Dr. Verbrugge, in favor of logic and reason, she assured herself that you can't judge someone by his personality. But again, that impulse canceled the operation. Since China Leonard was not a worrier, it took some effort to silence her inner voice. Don't be silly, she thought. St. Joseph's is one of the best hospitals in the state. It's a teaching hospital. It's owned by the Sisters of Charity, for Christ's sake. You just have to assume this doctor is good. With her intuition successfully beaten down, the operation went forward as scheduled, and Richard died during the minor procedure. It's a sad story that teaches us that the words, I know it, are more valuable than the words, I knew it. Later it was revealed that some of Dr. Verbrugge's colleagues had also been concerned about him. They said he was inattentive to his work, and, most seriously, there were at least six occasions when colleagues reported that he appeared to be sleeping during surgeries. For the hospital staff, these were clear signals, but I can't be certain what China and her son detected. Their concern, whatever it was, was justified by the boy's death, and I accept that as good enough. 
There were people right at the operating table who heard and then vetoed their intuition. The surgeon told Verbrugge that Richard's breathing was distressed, but Verbrugge did nothing effective. A nurse said she was getting concerned with the boy's distress, but chose to believe that Verbrugge was competent. One of the doctors who reviewed how people had performed in that operating room could have been speaking about denial in general when he astutely said, It's like waking up in your house with a room full of smoke, opening the window to let the smoke out, and then going back to bed. I've seen many times that after the shock of violence has begun to heal, victims will be carried in their minds back to that hallway or parking lot, back to the sights, smells, and sounds, back to the time when they still had choices before they fell under someone's malevolent control, before they refused the gift of fear. Often, they will say about some particular detail, I realize this now, but I didn't know it then. Of course, if it's in their heads now, so was it then. What they mean is that they only now accept the significance. This has taught me that the intuitive process works, though often not as well as its principal competitor, the denial process. With denial, the details we need for the best predictions float silently by us like life preservers, and while the man overboard may enjoy the comfortable belief that he is still in his stateroom, there is soon a price to pay for his daydream. I know a lot about this. I spent half my childhood and half my adulthood practicing prediction while perfecting denial. That will do it for the first audio segment, uh, Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. We'll pick up next week on Chapter 3, and he starts with a quote from Dr. Maya Angelou. Number to dial 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you didn't get to share during the first audio segment and you have a question, thought you would like to offer, make sure you get your hand up right now. Don't wait till the last two minutes. Uh, we have about 30 minutes, a little less, left in the broadcast. Uh, so if anything stood out in our first chapter, feel free. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, if you have commentary, feel free. Any of the folks that are with us, anything stood out from the first section or uh, folks not feeling the first or second audio segment, excuse me. Yes, may I be there? Mr. Demery Four, yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, the, <clears throat> the restaurant encounter, um, you know, we, um, that could have been, to me, just based on, <laughs> on his, uh, his racism. I mean, he comes in the restaurant, and he looks at the guy, you know, and he comes up with the fact that he came over his country, 
started his own rest, restaurant. Yeah. Major being from Iran, you know, may have been unique about it, but, you know, I think white people do that all the time. Like, that's all part of uh, the act of practicing racism, you know, prejudging, um, and then usually um, it's, it's got you at a, a lower status or a degraded status. So that's why he was denied the fact that he may have been right because the guy's a waiter and he wanted to keep him in that uh, degraded state. But to owning your restaurant is different than actually being just some worker. And <clears throat> he's talking about, uh, okay, intuition and then denial being the opposite of intuition. But you can't, if you think about it, you can't really just react every time on intuition. And that may be, uh, you know, that may be a result of people who practice racism just reacting to their intuition. You know, when they look at black people, oh, you look, you look like uh, like someone uh, that would do this or someone who didn't. Because I remember one time uh, I had missed, lost my wallet. And my wallet turned up at uh, the scene of a crime, you know, where it was a robbery. And then the police called me up to come get my wallet. So I go down there and... Uh, Sergeant was a white female sitting by the deck. She said, well, we, we knew you wasn't a suspect in this case because I looked through your wallet and I saw pictures of your little grandkids there. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, if I had been stupid enough to lose my wallet at the scene of the crime, I deserved to get caught. But I think they do those... Uh, that prejudging and that, you know, uh, coming to conclusions about people pretty easily. And I guess you can't minimize fear. Like the guy who wanted to call off the uh, surgery. I mean, that kind of happened to me in a way, too. I mean, I was scheduled to go into surgery and I had a... Uh, a brother, you know, was a black guy. He was the anesthesiologist. He had reassured me what all he's going to do, put you to sleep. You wouldn't feel a thing. <clears throat> and so I had confidence in it. The day of the surgery, he didn't show up. He was a white guy. And the white guy was looking a little shady. <laughs> and, uh, I said, you know, I didn't call off the thing. But I sure wanted to. And then after the surgery, I, I had difficulty waking up. I was in recovery too long. My wife had to come in and demand that they wake me up. My blood pressure was sky high. They were dealing with a guy that had given me the wrong dosage, dosage of anesthesia. And it just goes to show some of those uh, 
premonitions or whatever you want to call it, intuitions, you know, maybe we should follow. I'll move my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demery Four. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, if we missed you totally, you should definitely get your hand up now. Uh, do not wait till the last moment. Uh, other folks who dialed in. Howdy, Art. Greetings, Mr. Henry in Chicago. Um, that I saw was, um, quote, and why we are fascinated when a famous person is stalked attacked by a stalker, which happens once every two or three years, yet uninterested when a woman is killed by a stalking husband or boyfriend, which happens once every two hours. Uh, it's interesting because uh, over the last couple of years, there have been films of black, uh, non-white black women being uh, stalked and attacked. Uh, and these films are very famous. Uh, stuff like uh, films like Breaking In, No Good Deed, when the bow breaks or the intruder, it's like like a fascination with Hollywood of, you know, black women being terrorized or black families being terrorized in some of these movies. So, uh, but uh, that's all I have to add right now. Move my line. Uh, that is pretty widespread in the system of white supremacy. Lots of different films where folks are being females, particularly a lot of times it'll be white women, but all kinds of folks are being terrorized that said that, system of white supremacy, appetite for violence. Uh, other folks that we missed, haven't heard from at all, if you have commentary, proceed. We nab everybody or folks, I can get to some of my I'll do some of my notes. That way we won't be waiting until the last minute and then I'll double check, make sure other folks don't have anything. I said, and we'll have to monitor as we read the system of white supremacy. This book reminds me of the wisdom of psychopaths. And I hear, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm echoing and agreeing with some of the comments that people have shared already, but just, uh, and we, this is our first section. We got lots to read. We've only read two chapters. That said, white people are frequently talking about feeling paranoid, fearful, threatened isn't that what the killer of michael brown jr said i'm afraid uh, i'm scared i'm threatened i feared for my life isn't what they're saying all the time i feel like this text is feeding the paranoia the fear of white genetic annihilation really is feeding that for whites in this book like oh yeah you should be afraid you should be fearful uh it's feeding all of that when they are in supreme position even though i do think very constructive content for victims of racism to pay attention to some of these things. I'm glad Mr. Demi Ford shared that about the hospital situation as well. But uh, and, and if I'm talking crazy, let me know. But this does seem like it would be fueling racist paranoia. Continuing, let's see what notes that I took from chapter two. Let's see. Ginger does not ginger. Ginger does sense and react to fear in humans because she knows instinctively that a frightened person or animal is more likely to be dangerous, but she has nothing you don't have. Ginger's the dog. Uh, 
The problem, in fact, is that extra something you have that a dog doesn't, it is judgment, and that's what gets in the way of your perception and intuition. With judgment comes the ability to disregard your own intuition unless you can explain it logically. The eagerness to judge and convict your own feelings rather than honor them. Ginger is not distracted by the way things could be, used to be, or should be. She perceives only what is. Our reliance on the intuition uh, of a dog is often a way to find permission to have an opinion we might otherwise be forced to call, God forbid, unsubstantiated. This sounded very white for me. I think I said during the first segment that when they were saying, oh, no, 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 this is a violent world. I don't sit around and wait for the police. That's what those preppers say. If you've seen any of the preppers, the Minutemen, the white white militiamen, Timothy McVeigh, he mentioned the Oklahoma City bombing, named the white terrorist who did it. Uh, That's the same mentality that they have. I'm not going to depend on the government or the police to keep me safe, get my gun and do my thing. I said that was that sounded like the voice of white people. This sounds like the voice of white people. What do you think? Being uh, Lassie, Benjo, Bingo, Ren Tin Tin, the little dog. What do you think is going on? We'll listen to your intuition. Uh, we've talked about that consistently. That's Dr. Welsing too, Romulus and Remus in the ISIS papers. Uh, even though I can appreciate the, hey, maybe I don't have all the logic, but I can sense something is wrong. I'm getting uh, signals and it seems the dog or whatever else, there's some signals that something is up and I'm going to honor this until I figure it out. I totally respect that with the same time what I said about the dog. That's white folks. Next. Uh, all of this the police shooting one where the guy had the dream before and he saw it was coming all of that that's what I mean about the wisdom of psychopaths parts of this feels like I'm reading like a murder mystery romance type thing where it's going to be gore gore there for entertainment he talks about he could hear uh Patrick gurgling in the radio with blood in his mouth. I've been shot and all of that. That's very much wisdom of psychopaths. Jeffrey Dahmer loving the violence and tell me all the details about it. That's, you know, rampant throughout the system. Um, Let's see. Next. I do appreciate the portion where he said we gave several examples the male coming in and saying you know do you think at an unconscious level i don't want to sleep with my wife because i'm doing all these things to avoid being in bed with her again i can appreciate that aspect of the text encouraging people to be uh, more alert to signals thoughts feelings uh that we might be trying to minimize uh maybe feeling as though there's not a lot of logic or evidence underlying where that concerned feeling is coming from totally get that uh across the board uh same thing uh i would say before uh about being mindful about empathizing with white people even the white officer uh who got shot uh the doctor uh situation uh, i would even have some you know pause there if it's going to be a lot of empathize or i guess i'll pause maybe i'm making an assumption any of the folks that are reading the text if you think any of these people that are being discussed Patrick, the officer who got shot, Cynthia, anybody else, if you think he is talking about black people, some of these folks are black people, speak up. He does give some details so we can kind of, you know, guess it, try to figure out the racial classification. But if anybody thinks, you know, hey, I don't think all these folks are necessarily white. Maybe he's talking about some black people. Share that as well. Uh, he, 
hear the uh, rustling in the background and some of the other folks who dialed in with a hand up have commentary they wanted to share or want to respond to what they've heard thus far? Oh, just rustling. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I'm I'm still giving thought between uh, intuition and logic. Uh, I think logic is vitally important to uh, the subject that brings us on the cows, <laughs> which is racism, white supremacy. Uh, I'm not against uh, uh, intuition. Uh, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I think it's something that is, uh, you know, natural to have uh, thoughts of that nature. Uh, but I, I, I do think that the two uh, uh, have to be uh, kind of like organized together. Uh, I don't know being that the reading is still new on where the uh, writer uh, is, uh, is, is he making some sort of uh, broad separation distinction between the two or, or is he applauding uh, uh, intuition and disregarding um, uh, logic? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe someone else has a, has a def, more definite opinion about it. I'm, I'm just listening uh, to uh, what he has to say as best I could. So anybody who has an idea on it, it would help my thought. It help my thinking on what this person is, this white person is talking about. Uh, my sen- other folks can share their thoughts distinguishing uh, intuition from logic. Uh, my processing it, this is my first time reading the book, and I've read what we read today, two chapters. Um, he seemed to be suggesting that there's nothing incorrect about logic. It didn't seem like there was anything uh, minimizing uh, the use of logic to process our thoughts, feelings. It seemed to me intuition was more a feeling a thought, a concern that may or may not uh, be supported by logic. I think he used the word specifically. It might be unsubstantiated, but you should still pay attention to it. You should investigate and you should use logic as you investigate that concern, feeling unsubstantiated or not, and see if there is evidence underlying. I think uh, at least what we've heard thus far, the main point seems to be don't minimize just because there might not be logic supporting how you feel or think. If that's a thought that you have, it's a concern, that's your intuition, respect that, investigate and see if there's more to it. That's what I've gotten so far. I could be in error. Uh, If other folks, if you have your own commentary or you want to respond to retired firefighters query about intuition and logic in the first portion of the text, feel free. Uh, Let's see.
be heard. Your volume is a little low, Draptomania. I just took uh, the headphones off. Um, can I be heard now? That is better. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I just wanted to um, make a comment about um, what you said in regards to um, the paranoia um, with, the, uh, with the whole training. I thought the same thing. Um, as he was saying, he said something about um, there are um, police trainings that's using the fear of lo- um, logic as a training, um, you know, um, preparation, I guess, for trainers for police officers. And I thought the same exact thing that what you said in regards to it sounds like I said, well, maybe that's one of the reasons why so many um, non-white um, black people um, get murdered um, because of the paranoia, um, how they feel like we're a threat. And, you know, they're just listening to their paranoid intuition, um, you know, so I, I, I agree with um, with you on that. And I also agree that um, what you said in regards to logic and intuition, they need to work together. I don't think that it is separate. I think we have to use both at the same time. You know, um, there are some things that can be explained logically, but there then there are some things that you just cannot logically explain. And then you might have to just go on your intuition. I think that, um, you know, um, you do have to have a balance. You know, you have to have my eye when it comes down to those things. And um, that's all I had to share. Thanks. Much obliged, Draptomania. Thank you. And she has already read this book, so, you know, she would be a better person to ask, having been a little bit more familiar with the content than uh, Gusty or probably most of the other folks here. I know we did have a few other folks who had already read this book in its entirety, unless I am mistaken. Sounds like it. Uh, uh, it, it her comments helped uh, because, especially when she said that. Uh, the two you need to work with both of them together that that was uh that makes sense much obliged any other notes questions folks want to share first audio segment we'll have much more to uh dig into as we continue to read Grant, same thing that I have said as we've continued with all of our books. If you have additional uh, questions, thoughts, if you're listening to the archives, you can email in. Uh, we'll be happy to share your thoughts as we are reading. This book is nowhere near as long as uh, Mr. James Lowen book we just read. Nowhere near as long. We should be done way sooner before the summer uh, wraps up. We'll be moving on to new book. Anybody have any thoughts? Because it seems uh, Oprah Winfrey is, is riding tough with this book, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, any thoughts on why Oprah Winfrey uh, would be so enamored with this book other than system of racism white supremacy and you know the whites that she has to answer to like i do may have told her uh that you're going to promote this book heavily because we say so but any thoughts as to why oprah uh is such a big proponent of this book it seems can i be heard Gus? draftomania yes ma'am um my first thought is um she has um, has been a victim of um of um rape um and she discusses that openly so i would think um you know um coming from a woman's perspective um if you've ever gone through any type of instances of of, of um 
you know, being harmed, uh, you know, physically, you know, uh, it, that would be one of the reasons. Um, but I think the main reason is the latter, which you just said. Um, <laughs> she has to answer up to the same, you know, uh, you know, she has to answer up to uh, the white supremacist like we do. So, um, but I think this special interest would be the fact that she does discuss openly about, um, you know, uh, her unfortunate um, uh, situation in regards to being raped and things like that. Like a lot of us, um, unfortunately, um, can identify with. And that's all I have to share. Much obliged, Draptomania. That oh. is correct. Uh, retired firefighter, go ahead. Yes, I, I'm, I'm in agreement of the last caller, uh, uh, specifically uh, because Ms. Brimfrey also is, uh, I would say, globally known for uh, quote-unquote gender issues. And uh, based on how the last caller explained it as far as from a female standpoint, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, just, just based on what she's been involved with for what, about the last 25, 30 years, uh, uh, that, uh, I would, I can see how this book would be something that, uh, uh, would be something that she would endorse in itself. And the examples that already have been given, especially the first one. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Any other folks with final comments they want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up? Well, uh, I would just say that I think Oprah has been known for speaking up for uh, feminine issues and um, this book has a tone, like you said earlier, that um, it may be, you know, addressing uh, women in particular, and but not necessarily uh, women having a more, um, I guess, sensitivity to uh, instinct or intuition and made it prone to be a victim of a violent situation. So <clears throat> I think that may be one of the reasons why Oprah was so big on this book, uh, because to me, it seems like issues like that take preference over just flat out uh, racist issues and uh, in her agenda. I moved my line. Much obliged, Mr. Demery, for that is certainly consistent with the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, you can talk about Me Too and many other things. We are not going to talk about the system of racism, white supremacy, where non-white males and non-white females are abused, terrorized worldwide. Uh, with that, uh, we pretty much did our three hours. <clears throat> uh, you all can resume 
the hot dogs, barbecuing, whatever else uh, is going down on the 4th. Uh, we will be here. Workplace racism. I suspect that many folks will not be working today and also will not be at work tomorrow, maybe even the whole weekend. So, hey, parlay, come in. We'll do workplace racism same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, hopefully you can use this time in a constructive manner. Uh, I, in addition to being ready for the broadcast today, assisted a non-white uh, black mother uh, in cleaning and repairing right on Mr. Fuller's list of four ways to use time and energy. We did cleaning, repairing, exchanging views on racism, and then had the audacity, made the error to spend an hour watching television. It was the worst decision ever. We watched Black Mirror. We both felt traumatized. Uh, just one episode. Mm-hmm. I'm never watching Black Mirror again. I can Matt, pff, the man not Dr. Tommy J. Curry. My goodness. It was one of the most repulsive things I've ever seen. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, the grandsister genius. She said reading is more important than watching television. It was so bad. We got to the end of the television show. The other victim I watched it was black mother said, Oof, I don't want to watch this anymore. And I need to get back into reading. Woo! Love it. We will call it a broadcast. Thanks, everyone, for participating. I hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening where you could have been eating hot dogs or doing cooler things. Sobriety would be best. Said it again. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. It is definitely more challenging to uh, hear, listen to, acknowledge your intuition and follow logic if you are intoxicated, even though that's going to be heavily encouraged over this so-called holiday weekend. We're still in a system of racism. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled in, especially this weekend. Let's be buckled in. I had the misfortune of hearing from victims of racism that enforcement officials are out this week stopping victims of racism for anything. Failure to have on a turn sickle, failure to have on a seatbelt, anything. Sobriety checkpoints are going to be out aggressively and probably in areas where non-white people reside. Be sober. Or if you got to consume the poisons, I mean narcotics, get to one spot and stay there. That way you're not going to be causing additional problems and hopefully will be less likely to bump into an enforcement officer, race soldier, badge or no. In addition to being sober, let's be off those cell phones when you're in a vehicle as a driver. That's another easy one. They look up. Easy ticket right there. And we get to harass and steal some of their time and energy. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. 
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.